This picture of Christopher was made available to the news media yesterday by members of Christopher's company at Fort Benning, Georgia. At Fort Benning, Christopher was charged with attempting to murder Leonard Coles, a black private from Virginia. That stabbing incident and the charge against Christopher may have triggered the interest of Buffalo authorities. Police investigators Melvin Lobbett and Thomas Rash spent three days at Fort Benning, where Christopher is being held in the stockade. Sources close to that investigation told me Christopher referred all questions to his Army-appointed attorney, who would not talk with reporters. While all this was going on in Fort Benning, a search of Christopher's East Side Buffalo home and hunting camp in Chautauqua County turned up a 22 caliber Ruger rifle magazine, said to be the same make of the weapon used in the four 22 caliber killings in western New York. Police also confiscated a 22 caliber gun barrel, two sawed-off gun stocks, 22 caliber ammunition and spent shells, and a variety of knives. They also found a black knit watch cap and a green army-style rain jacket. The evidence has been sent to the lab for analysis. Joseph Christopher, seen here in a 1974 Burgard High School yearbook picture, has been described as a loner, but a good son and a church-going man. His fellow soldiers told me Christopher attended church every Sunday during his six weeks of basic training, but that he allegedly stabbed Coles one Sunday morning before church. Army officials told me that while he was being held in the stockade, he tried to take his own life by slashing himself with a razor blade. There are still many questions unanswered about Christopher. But D.A. Cosgrove is not saying a word about the investigation, only that his men will be working throughout the weekend and that he hopes to resolve all problems, as he says, as soon as possible. Christopher has not been charged with any of the killings in western New York and is now only considered a subject worthy of questioning. Christopher's extradition hearing was held behind closed doors, orders of Judge John Land, and that wasn't all. Not only was the extradition hearing closed here at the government center, but Superior Court judge ordered all reporters and photographers off the 10th floor, the floor where that hearing was to take place. The local sheriff, Gene Hodge, told me that was highly unusual. We would learn later Christopher did not even appear at the hearing, a decision made by his attorney, Kevin Dillon. To reach Christopher, his mother was here to be with her son. Attorney Dillon told us he was happy with some things he learned in that hearing. He said he asked a lot of questions of state police investigator Sam Slade. Relative to photographs that uh, they introduced in evidence at the time of the proceeding, uh, I generally questioned Mr. Slade concerning uh, his knowledge of the identity of the person depicted in the photograph. Investigators charged with the task of returning Christopher would not stop to answer reporters' questions about the man who has been the focus of attention since an Erie County grand jury indicted him on three counts of murder a week and a half ago. Marie Rice News 4, Columbus, Georgia. Under heavy guard, Christopher arrived. He was in the back seat, his face fully covered by what appeared to be a ski mask. He was sandwiched between Buffalo Homicide Chief Donovan and State Police Lieutenant Sam Slade. State Police Captain Williams, another key task force leader, was driving. Security remained tight until Christopher was safely in the hands of the Erie County Sheriff Kenneth Braun. An hour later, District Attorney Cosgrove told us he had advised Governor Carey of Christopher's safe return to Buffalo and that Christopher would be held under extremely tight security. The sheriff assures me that uh, there will be no problem in securing the, the, the body and uh, presence of uh, Mr. Christopher, and uh, uh, I'll leave it at that. Will there be a special 24-hour watch on it? It will certainly be done all by the sheriff that is necessary to make sure that uh, the person of Mr. Christopher is, is safe. 
question of whether Christopher remains a major suspect in the New York City and Rochester killings. First order of business of today was to make sure that we received a successful hearing at the, at the hands of the Georgia authorities to secure the order of rendition, which we did. The second uh, uh, most important priority was to return the man safely to Erie County, and, the, uh, and I think we've accomplished that. I, I, I think that uh, the person of Mr. Christopher, as in the case of all persons charged with crime in this community, they are all secured. Uh, they are all protected. Uh, their rights are, are, are paramount in, in our consideration and deliberations, as are the people of Erie County. Erie County, New York, context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 14, 2022. So I have been told this is the Catherine Massey book club at the cows ninth installment on Catherine Pelinero's absolute madness we are picking up uh, kind of the earlier part of chapter 14 Uh, they are doing the investigation and getting the indictment and everything trying to see if they can get old Joey extradited and brought on up to Erie County for the investigation and charges and all the rest of it. Uh, I will only say we've had a number of folks who uh, have written in. I'll share some of their commentary uh, as we proceed. Uh, I will continue to ask listeners to ponder. We even had another white man on the program uh, this week. Dr. Robert M. Silverman teaches at the University of Buffalo, has lived in the Buffalo area for 20 years. He didn't know about this case either, and he's in his 50s. Uh, We asked, what do we make of that? All of these different white professors and folks who've lived in the area and teach at the University of Buffalo, and they don't know about this case. What do we say? (laughs) We had some folks say, is this a deliberate, willful effort? to conceal these events are they really maybe all of the individuals classified as white don't go to the bottom of the ocean to research everything maybe there's some of that too I don't know we will have to consider anyway we will push off chapter 14 Catherine Pellinero absolute madness context of white supremacy audio segment one While Lobbett and Rash worked down in Georgia, the task force interviewed every person in Buffalo they could find who had ever crossed paths with Joseph Christopher. Prior to the search, investigators had quietly interviewed some of his neighbors, former employers and friends, including Joe's closest friend, Peter Tramontina, who had been interviewed at length at the district attorney's office. Peter explained how he'd become aware of Joe's arrest in the Army, how Joe had written a letter to the Bianchis, who had in turn contacted Peter. He had visited Joe's mother, who was very upset about Joe's situation and didn't know what to do. Mrs. Christopher had given Peter the number of a chaplain in Fort Benning, and Peter had tried to contact the chaplain on a few occasions, but had been unable to reach him. Peter confirmed what Donna Van Olden had said about Joe, having withdrawn from people over the past couple of years. Peter explained that from their mid-teens to early twenties, 
He and Joe had been the best of friends and were together most of the time. Lately, however, Joe didn't seem to have any close friends. Peter had periodic contact with him, but they were never as tight as they'd once been. Peter had seen Joe four or five times between September and November 1980, including the night before Joe left for the Army when they had gone out for pizza and beer. The last time he'd seen Joe was around January 2nd, when Joe was home on leave. Joe had come over to Peter's house, and they had engaged in small talk. Joe had mentioned that he was having difficulty adjusting to Army life, but he didn't get into any detail. Asked about Christopher's background, Peter said that Joe had taken his father's death hard and felt guilty for the way he had treated his father. Peter had noticed the biggest change in Joe after his breakup with Donna, after which Joe seemed to isolate himself from everyone, as if he was just done with people. He acknowledged that Joe had once used a lot of marijuana and also used speed. He confirmed the incident of Joe injecting Valium and subsequently coming down with hepatitis. Joe had quit all of that, however, about the same time he started his unofficial withdrawal from society. Peter was asked if he was aware of any acts of violence perpetrated by Christopher in the past. He qualified the use of the term violence. However, he did relate the two incidents he was aware of where Joe had become aggressive with females, Donna being one of them. Investigators questioned Peter about Nicholas Christopher's gun collection. He acknowledged that Joe had come into possession of the firearms after the death of his father. Peter was asked if he remembered a 1022 Ruger rifle being among the collection, and he responded yes. He explained about the bullet trap in the Christopher basement and recalled that he and Joe had fired the weapon down there and at the property in Ellington. Peter was positive of the identification of the Ruger 1022 because he remembered the cylinder sheath clip. Investigators showed Peter a cylindrical clip from a Ruger 1022 and he identified it as similar to the one he had seen and used at the Christopher residence. Joe had told Peter about losing a Beretta handgun. Joe had been concerned that the loss of the weapon might cause him to lose his pistol permit, and thereby the control of the weapons that had been the personal property of his father, which he definitely wanted to keep in the family. Joe had ultimately thought that the Beretta was stolen from the basement by a black male utility meter reader. Joseph Christopher had been an auto mechanics major at Burgard High School, a vocational school on the city's east side. He had dropped out in his junior year, in January 1974, at the age of 18. He had graduated eighth grade from public school 82, where records showed he had been an average student, earning B's or C's in all subjects except physical education, in which he earned an A, and music which he failed for lack of effort. Other than a high number of tardies and absences in eighth grade and high school, his disciplinary record was average and unremarkable. His first job out of high school had been as a busboy at the snack bar at Deaconess Hospital. He had only worked there from early February to late March 1974. According to the hospital, he had walked off the job when told he had to wear a uniform. He then worked as a furnace cleaner and repairman for ABD Heating. The owner and a longtime employee both recalled Christopher as a good worker who showed up on time 
and never had any complaints about him. The owner said that Christopher had actually worked for him twice, as he had quit at one point and said he was going into business for himself in the auto parts line. This hadn't lasted long, however, as the owner recalled that Christopher had come back to work for him about two weeks later. He worked for the company for less than a year. They said that Christopher was a hot rodder and drove a black Camaro. Asked if he had ever shown any animosity toward black people or had any problems with blacks, both said no. They were asked about any guns Christopher may have had, but they knew of none. They told the investigators that if they were looking at Christopher as possibly being the twenty-two caliber killer, he looked nothing like the composite. Christopher was a short, stocky guy with curly, kinky hair. Investigators spoke with another man in the same industry who had employed Christopher on a freelance job. He had known Joe for about seven years, but had last seen him two years before, when Joe had done some body work on his truck. He had, in fact, asked about Christopher just a couple of weeks before, when he had attended an anniversary party for his former business partner, Lee Chamberlain Sr., and his wife, and had run into Peter Tramantina. He was interested in having Joe do some more body work on one of his vehicles and asked Peter about him. Peter told him Joe was in the Army. The man could offer little else, but told the officer that if they were looking at Joe as being involved in the twenty-two caliber killings, they were barking up the wrong tree. Christopher looked nothing like the sketches, and his hair wasn't blonde. The task force paid a call at the home of Lee Chamberlain Sr., whose two older sons, Lee Jr. and Scott, had been close friends of Joe Christopher and Peter Tramantina. The Chamberlain family had known Joe since the boys were in their early teens, when Lee Jr. and Scott befriended him in Boy Scouts. Lee Jr. was the same age as Joe and Peter. Scott was a year younger. The Chamberlain boys had also attended Burgard High School. For many years, the four youths, Joe, Peter, Lee, and Scott, had been together constantly. Joe spent a lot of time at the Chamberlain home, staying for days at a time. After high school, the boys had eventually drifted apart. Lee Jr. had moved to California a few years earlier. Peter and Scott were both married. Lee Sr. had given Joe his first job in the heating business. Joe had worked for him part-time, cleaning furnaces, for about a year and a half. He described Joe as a terrific worker, cooperative, and no trouble whatsoever. Joe rented a garage from a neighbor up the street from his mother's house and always worked on cars on the side. Chamberlain said he liked Joe, but that you couldn't get close to him. He'd always been a very polite and cordial young man, but distant. Lee Sr. acknowledged that Joe was a gun enthusiast, and he was aware of the large collection he'd inherited from his father. Asked whether Christopher ever carried a knife, Chamberlain said Joe would carry one when he went hunting or fishing, but normally he never saw him with a knife. Investigators asked whether Christopher's emotional makeup had changed after the death of his father. Chamberlain replied yes, but said that he wasn't speaking from personal knowledge, only what he'd heard from Peter Tramantina shortly after the death of Nicholas Christopher. Peter had described Joe as living like a hermit, spending stretches of time alone at the cabin in Ellington. Lee Sr. had visited the cabin in the spring of 1980 when he, his son Scott, and another young man had gone fishing out there with Joe. He'd last seen Joe a couple months afterward, 
in June 1980, when Joe had taken his daughter to a wedding. Chamberlain's daughter was asked about this evening, specifically about Joe's attitude and the car he drove. She said he had picked her up in a blue, newer-looking car that he'd said he'd borrowed from a friend, but she didn't know the make or model. She thought Joe Christopher was weird, mostly because he didn't drink or smoke, and only drank orange juice while they were out. She commented that he had really calmed down from his earlier days. It was the weekend before Easter when the Chamberlains had heard that Joe was in some sort of trouble in the army. Scott Chamberlain had learned about it from Peter at the anniversary party. Lee Sr. said he had phoned Joe's mother, but she would tell him nothing. He wanted to write to Joe, but Mrs. Christopher wouldn't allow it. Neighbors on Weber Avenue had not been able to add anything of value to the investigation. Without exception, they all described the Christophers as a nice, ordinary family, and Joe as a quiet, courteous young man. Most everyone in the neighborhood seemed to know Joe, but no one seemed to be particularly close to him, with perhaps two exceptions. Laverne Becker, the middle-aged bachelor who lived next door, and the Bianchis, the elderly Italian couple to whom Christopher had written his desperate letter back in January, asking for help finding an attorney. Carlo and Lydia Bianchi had been among the first people investigators had interviewed after receiving the information on Christopher from Fort Benning. In broken English, they said they both felt sorry for Joe and the fact that he was in trouble. They constantly referred to him as a very, very good boy, a nice boy, not in peace with himself. They thought of him as moody. Whenever they asked him what was wrong, he would say nothing. The Bianchis explained that Joe had worked for them around the house doing odd jobs, cutting grass, painting, etc. Mrs. Bianchi said that they received two letters from Joe while he was in the army, one in the beginning, when he first went away, in which he seemed happy, and the second, when he was in trouble. They had spoken with his sister after the second letter and told her that they couldn't answer the letter due to their problems writing in English. They had apologized, but felt that there was nothing they could do. Asked if Christopher had ever indicated any dislike for blacks, they responded no. On the contrary, Mrs. Bianchi recalled that Joe had defended blacks when she had voiced complaints about them. Investigators also visited a middle-aged woman who had purchased a blue 1970 Chevy from Joseph Christopher. He had sold her the car in August and she produced the vehicle registration showing that she had registered the car on August 14th. Since the blue car had been in her possession at the time of the murders, the matter was not pursued further. The task force had been unable to interview Laverne Becker, the next-door neighbor, until after the search of the Christopher home. Investigators visited him where he worked, at the Pepsi bottling plant. Becker had lived next door to the Christophers since the family moved in back in 1962, when Joe had been seven years old. Mr. Becker spoke highly of Joe. He'd been fond of him since he was a little boy and considered him the son he'd never had. Joe had come to say goodbye and had given him a kiss on the cheek before he left for the army. Mr. Becker was asked if he had received any correspondence from Joe since he'd been in the military. He said that he'd received a few letters prior to the 1980 holidays and recalled the letters being high and low. 
asked to explain, he said that one letter would be very nice, and yet another he could hardly understand. Becker was asked if, in any of these letters, Christopher had expressed a desire or intention to go to New York City over the Christmas holidays. Mr. Becker didn't recall that as being the content of any of the letters. However, Mrs. Christopher had told him about letters from Joseph that mentioned something about going to New York City or Yorktown or some such place. He couldn't remember specifically where. According to what he'd heard from Mrs. Christopher, Joseph wanted to see about going into the Jesuits or the monks or something like that. He wanted to surprise his mother and enter the religious life. Becker believed that this was supposed to take place over the Christmas holidays, but he was unsure. He no longer had any letters from Joseph, as he had given them all to Mrs. Christopher. Mr. Becker was also asked about the possibility of any of the Christopher girls having been assaulted or injured by any person, in particular a black man, during the past years. Becker recalled no such incident. He was asked specifically if any of the girls ever suffered a broken jaw or any such injury. Again, his reply was negative. The question of whether any of Joseph's sisters had been assaulted by a black male had come up in the wake of publicity generated by the search. Police had received a couple of anonymous calls. One came from a person who claimed that one of the sisters had been raped by a black man. Another told a police officer that Joseph Christopher had two or three older sisters and that one of them was involved with a black male and had a baby by a black man and that when Nicholas Christopher found out about this, he died. The person further said that Joseph had gone into seclusion since the father's death and had moved his bedroom furniture into the basement, and that he stayed down there by himself since the death of his father. Police had already searched and photographed the Christopher home. There was no bedroom furniture in the basement. The tipster believed there was a possibility that Joseph was killing blacks because he thought his sister's relationship with a black male had caused their father's death. A search of police records turned up no incidents of any females in the Christopher family having been assaulted by a black male, nor by anyone else. People who actually knew the family well told authorities that they had never heard of any such thing. Zach the Fusco, who was called in for further questioning, also stated that he was unaware of such an occurrence, Zack said that, to the best of his knowledge, none of the sisters had ever been involved with a black male or had a black baby. The allegation that Nicholas Christopher had died upon learning that one of his daughters had a black baby was patently false. Nicholas had died of long-term heart disease. Investigators knew the circumstances of Nicholas Christopher's death to be as Zack claimed. They had obtained a copy of his death certificate and had, in fact, even visited the plot where he was buried to check it for signs of disturbance, like maybe a buried twenty-two caliber sawed-off Ruger rifle. The searches of the Weber Avenue home and the Ellington cabin had yielded no such weapon. Authorities had not seized any firearms at all, in fact. The only guns found at Weber Avenue were a 16-gauge Remington semi-automatic shotgun, a thirty caliber U.S. carbine rifle, a .30-06 Winchester rifle, a 20-gauge Browning Magnum semi-automatic shotgun, and a starter pistol, none of which were within the scope of the search warrant or of the investigation. 
Serial numbers of the four long guns had been recorded and special file checked, with negative results. No firearms were found at Ellington. The majority of what was seized in the searches was ammunition and spent shells. At the Weber house, police had taken a total of nine boxes of various twenty-two caliber ammunition. They had also confiscated a cigar box with ten spent twenty-two caliber casings, a pistol barrel, a Ruger rotary magazine, two gun stocks, and debris from the bullet trap. They took six knives, a black knit watch cap, a leather hat, and a fatigued green army-style jacket that appeared to have flecks of blood on the sleeve. The jacket and hats had been recovered from Joseph's bedroom. In Ellington, they took three boxes of bullets and sixty-one expended cases of twenty-two caliber ammunition found on the property. They also cut down a tree that had a number of bullets lodged within. A section of the tree was taken for processing. All items seized were transported to the Central Police Services Lab by noon on April 23rd. The following day, State Trooper Terry Rodland personally delivered a number of the items to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. While the task force interviewed known friends and acquaintances of Joseph Christopher, John Reagan had one person in mind that he wanted to speak to, and that was Kenny Paulson, witness to the Glenn Dunn homicide. From the moment Christopher's name had surfaced as a suspect, Reagan had thought of Paulson. Glenn Dunn had been shot in the parking lot at Genesee and Floss, approximately three-tenths of a mile from Christopher's home. Joe Christopher lived on Weber Avenue. Kenny Paulson lived on Floss. Weber was the next street over from Floss. Detective Reagan paid a call on Kenny at his home. Reagan asked him if he knew Joseph Christopher. Kenny said he'd never heard of him. He might possibly have seen him around, he said, but he didn't know him by name. Kenny insisted that he didn't know the assailant and didn't get a good look at his face. Reagan had him describe again how the man had left the scene of the homicide. In Reagan's opinion, it would be nearly impossible for Kenny not to have seen at least a partial portion of the shooter's face, either a side view or a full frontal view. Reagan noted in his report that Kenny Paulson was extremely nervous when questioned as to his knowledge of the homicide and whether or not he knew the shooter, either from the neighborhood or personally. Paulson said that he'd be glad to take a polygraph test to remove him from any contact in the case. John Reagan concluded the interview and left, but he wasn't done with Kenny Paulson. Angela Christopher was in her senior year of high school. She hadn't gone to school on the day after the search or on the following day. In the aftermath of that surreal invasion, she and her sister Lorraine were living with a sense of caution. They had taken their mother to stay at an aunt's house to shield her from the reach of reporters and give her the opportunity to seek legal help for Joe, the burden for which, of course, had fallen solely on Teresa. There was no peace of mind to be had at Weber, with the steady knocks on the door, the constant ringing of the phone, and the people who drove by the house to shout vulgarities or fling M-80s into their driveway. Though it had been well publicized that Joseph was incarcerated down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and hadn't yet been charged in any of the Buffalo or New York crimes, 
That didn't stop some people from venting their spleen at his home on Weber Avenue. For his sisters, who were still reeling from the turmoil of the past few months, with Joe's breakdown in the army and their mother's distress, this sudden notoriety and the constant presence of strangers lurking around their home was not only frightening, but nearly as inconceivable as the idea that their brother was under suspicion for murder. Angela could not reconcile the sudden nightmare they were living with anything she knew of Joe. He had always been the protective older brother, quiet and inconspicuous, but always there. The seven-year gap in their ages had cast Joe into a paternal role when it came to Angela, particularly after their dad died. It was a duty he'd always embraced and fulfilled well. She'd been very young when Nicholas passed away. Joe had been twenty. It was Joe who came looking for her on summer nights if she wasn't home by the time the streetlights flicked on. It was Joe who warned two obnoxious neighborhood boys not to pick on his sister or her friends, who made a bicycle for her out of parts he found and cobbled together because they couldn't afford to buy a new bike, who patiently taught her to parallel park when she was old enough to go for her driver's license. When they spent time out in the country, back when their dad was alive and taking the family to Ellington for summer vacations, Joe would take her with him when he went to bale hay at the farm down the road and let her pet the horses while he worked. They'd head back to the cabin when it started getting dark, and he'd tease her and say he'd leave her behind if she didn't keep up with him. She walked faster, though she knew he'd never really do that. He'd once made her a snow fort in the backyard at Weber when she was seven years old. He carved it out of a snowbank. It had two rooms, with an entrance on the top and on the side. He sculpted a bed and drew in a kitchen and sink. When Joe made something, he really made something. He'd done all that for her, to give her something special to play in. She loved it. She loved him. He was a normal brother, a very good brother. To Angela, it seemed like the change that had come over Joe in the time before he'd left for the army had happened virtually overnight. One day he had been his same self, a young guy who wore a leather jacket and went out with friends and kept a messy bedroom. The next day, so it seemed, the jacket was gone, his bedroom hollowed out and stark, and in place of socializing and doing things he'd always loved, like taking photographs and working on cars, he was wearing corduroy pants with a white shirt and going to church every day with their mother. Angela had asked him once, What the hell happened to you? He told her to shut up. Then there was that strange thing he did. When he took all the Tupperware and hid it down in the basement, Angela had found it and teased him. Hey, whack job, I found the Tupperware. He flew off the couch and chased her up the stairs. That silly thing hadn't seemed like much at the time, even his sudden interest in going to church or keeping his room so bare and tidy. None of it seemed to her like a big deal in the grand scheme of things, nothing to really cause concern, and certainly nothing to spark the type of suspicions that had brought the police to their home. Never, throughout any of these shifts in behavior, had Joe ever been cruel or antagonistic much less violent, toward anybody. How anyone could think her brother was capable of the kind of wanton destruction the authorities suspected was just beyond comprehension.
worse yet. There were people, strangers, who seemed to interpret the search of their house as proof enough that Joe must be the long-sought killer. And so the family home had suddenly become an object of widespread curiosity, if not outright persecution. A marked place, filmed and photographed and mentioned daily on front pages and TV news. The two young women inside found themselves forced to live as if in a fortress, curtains tightly drawn, on guard for whatever might happen next. They worried about their brother, about their mother, about who might be stepping up on their front porch this time to peer through the windows. They could only wait and pray for the time when it would all finally die down. But that would prove to be a long, long wait. Joe Christopher and I were genuinely good friends. We worked, socialized, exercised, and went fishing together. Ernie Smith had been Joe's partner on the maintenance crew at Canisius College. Ernie was 36 years old, an affable man who had left Canisius soon after Joe had, and presently worked as a salesman for an auto dealership. He and Joe had worked the midnight to 8 a.m. shift together for the duration of Joe's employment at the college. Ernie had been brought to the DA's office for questioning two days after the news hit that Joe was a prime suspect in the serial murders of black men. Like all of Joe's other friends, Ernie said that he couldn't see Joe as the so-called twenty-two caliber killer. He also told investigators that Joe had never exhibited any racial hatred. Ernie didn't believe Joe was a racist. He further felt that if Joe was a racist, and particularly anti-black, he would know since Ernie himself was black. We were close friends for about 16 months, since he started at Canisius until about May of 1978, Ernie stated. He was always with me, Donna or Peter Tramantina. I ate at his, Donna's house, his mother's house, and he ate at mine with me and my woman, Melanie. On one occasion, I moved to a room over Little Harlem on Michigan Avenue, and Joe helped me move. Joe sometimes picked Ernie up for work in his pickup truck. They often went out together to shoot pool or have a drink, although Joe wasn't much of a drinker. Ernie acknowledged that the two of them used to get high, though Ernie limited himself to marijuana. We smoked together, but I never got into any other drugs like he did. I was never around him when he was shooting up. Ernie also described how the two of them were into physical fitness, Joe was very strong. We used to work out regularly at Kessler Center, two to three hours a day. We fooled around and wrestled. Joe was two or three inches shorter than me and a little lighter, but he was strong. I could handle him, but no way was it easy. Ernie thought it bothered Joe that he couldn't handily win their wrestling matches. He was using a lot of weight on the Universal, trying to build himself up. He could use 140 pounds pressing, reps, etc., over a two- to three-hour workout, Ernie stated. He used the 140 easy. I only used 90. Joe could easily bench press 180 pounds. Asked further about their social activities, Ernie said, Once in a while, Joe would want to go fool around with street girls, but we never picked any up. I had a lot of girls. I used to have a different girlfriend every other week like that. Joe never seemed too interested in getting down with them, although he could have. 
I didn't care. Joe was with Donna at the time. Asked about that relationship, Ernie said, I never made it with Donna. I never tried or even talked like that, although it's in the back of my mind that Joe maybe was afraid I might. I was never alone with her. She was a nice lady, very kind to me, and Joe really loved her. I never kidded with Joe about Donna because I had it in the back of my mind that he was the kind of dude that wouldn't think twice about messing you up over his old lady. Towards the end, he was complaining that things were not good at home with Donna, that she was pissing him off. He complained about this guy who owed her money, maybe about a thousand dollars or so. She had loaned the guy some money or something, and Joe was mad that she still had to go see him or work for him. Joe tried to score with this black girl who worked with us at Canisius. She turned him down. Later, I started going with her, and that made him mad. I think she and Joe almost came to blows. She told me that she wasn't going to hook up with that whitey. Ernie had visited the cabin in Ellington. He'd also viewed Joe's firearms. He was very proud of his gun collection. Showed the guns to me many times. He had special holsters and everything, and almost always had a gun with him, either on him or in his car. Explaining how their friendship had ended, he said, when Joe and I fell out, he accused me of stealing his buck knife, which I didn't. We went down to his truck and found it. It was like he wanted an excuse to start an argument. Like others, Ernie had also noticed what seemed like an abrupt change in Joe's personality. The knife incident strained the friendship. After that, we were just about through. Then I had a little fight with a guy at Canisius, a white guy. I gave him a shove and knocked him down. Later, Joe came to me and said, You're supposed to be a big man. I told him to cut it out, and I walked away. I didn't want to fight with Joe, his knives, and his guns. According to Ernie, Joe seemed to change toward everybody. Joe refused to speak to anyone at work for a period of time. Later, the situation changed, and he would speak only to the white workers. Ernie guessed that Joe was jealous of Donna's relationships with other men. It was hard to figure out what was up with him. His behavior just grew odd. Joe was caught sleeping on the job three times. The third time was the last straw. He was fired. The last time Ernie saw Joe was in the late summer of 1980. Ernie had been outside the auto dealership where he worked when Joe came walking down the street. They spoke. He said he was walking to a friend's house. He was telling me that he had lost his girl, his truck, and his job because of a drinking spree, and that he was trying to get himself together for the past week. I got called on the intercom. When I came back, he was gone. Melvin Lobbett and Thomas Rash headed back to Georgia on Monday, April 27th. There were several reasons for this. The searches had not yielded the proverbial smoking gun, nor much at all of evidentiary value according to preliminary tests that had been conducted throughout the weekend. A source told the Buffalo Evening News that ballistics tests performed at the Central Police Services Lab don't look too promising at this point. In addition, witnesses to the twenty-two caliber killings and the Buffalo stabbings, including victim Albert Menefee, had failed to pick Christopher out of a photo lineup that included some of the twenty-three photographs that Lobbett and Rash had taken during their first visit to Fort Benning. 
Commenting on these disappointing results, the source told the news, it makes things a lot harder. Christopher's fingerprints had already been compared to the latent prints lifted from the cabs of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones, with negative results, though this information was not disseminated to the media. The only thing that tied Christopher to any of the crimes so far were his confessions, made to nurses at a psychiatric facility following a time when he had starved himself, stared at light bulbs for hours, and cut his penis with a razor blade. New York City detectives had traveled to Fort Benning on April 25th to do some investigating of their own. This spurred a sort of unspoken competition between the two jurisdictions, mainly on the part of the Buffalo Task Force. Christopher was the most promising suspect they'd had in months. They didn't relish the idea of New York City possibly making a case against him first, in essence, pulling the fish from their net. But perhaps the most compelling reason for Lobbett and Rash to hurry back to Fort Benning was the news that Joseph Christopher had reportedly asked to speak with police. The CID had stayed in contact with the task force and let them know of some interesting developments that had taken place following the departure of Lobbett and Rash. Over the weekend, Captain Rayford Ames, commanding officer of the stockade, had conversations with Christopher relative to the crimes. In addition, the CID had learned of the statements Christopher had made to PFC Corwin, his guard at the hospital. Lobbett, Rash, and two detectives from New York City met with Rayford Ames in the presence of the CID. Ames said that on the afternoon of Friday, April 24th, guards informed him that Christopher, who was in a segregation cell, wanted to see him. He directed the guards to bring Christopher to his office. Christopher wanted food. Ames believed that Christopher was going to proposition him. Ames had read a hospital report that stated Christopher had previously made a homosexual proposition to a staff member in order to get a sandwich, and he'd further heard that guards had told Christopher that this was the way to get special favors from the confinement officer. Ames said he had therefore warned him against it right away. I told him, Look, Christopher, I'll do whatever I can to help you while you're in here, as long as it is within the regulations. But don't make a homosexual proposition to me, because it won't profit you. I'm not homosexual. I don't know if you're homosexual, but making a proposition towards me won't gain you anything. And I asked him, was he homosexual? And he said no. So he didn't make the proposition, but that's how we really got started in our conversation. Christopher had ended up spending the better part of the afternoon in Captain Ames's office. Ames had some food brought in and let him eat his fill as they talked. Captain Ames, who was black, was aware of Christopher's statements to the nurses and that Christopher was being investigated as a suspect in the New York murders. Everyone at the base was aware of it by this time, as both local and out-of-town press had converged on Fort Benning. As Ames explained his Friday afternoon conversation with Christopher, he and I discussed different topics, from racial issues to religious preferences and things of that nature, but I never did approach him directly about the Buffalo incident or anything relating to charges he's facing or he's allegedly involved in, acts that he allegedly admitted to. But I do feel that during the course of our conversation, during his stay here in the office, 
There was a sense of rapport developed between us where he felt, maybe I can talk to this guy, because trust was mentioned. And at the onset of the conversation, he mentioned, well, I don't trust anyone. I don't have any friends. It's like the world is against me. And I said, well, I can imagine how you feel, especially facing what you're facing. But don't feel as if you're a lone ranger, because I don't trust anyone either. As a matter of fact, I don't trust you. And he let me know that he didn't trust me. And I told him I felt it was best to be that way. Ames asked Christopher if he had anything against blacks. Christopher told him no. He asked Christopher if he had come to the office to kill him, and his answer to that was also no. What Christopher did want, aside from food, was to get out of segregation, back into the general inmate population. Ames told him that wasn't possible. Their conversation had ended when a female friend of Captain Ames came to his office for a prearranged dinner date. He had introduced Christopher to his female friend. She joined the conversation, and at one point she asked Christopher if he had really killed people in Buffalo. He had responded, People say I did. The following day, Ames said, he was off duty, but had come in for a walkthrough of the detention facility. He stopped by Christopher's cell and had a brief conversation. I was just more or less summarizing what had taken place Friday, because that's the first time I really had any prolonged contact with Christopher, Ames stated. He asked me whether or not it would be possible to get some additional cereal, have the wheat taken out of his diet, and things of that nature. And he asked me whether or not I could contact Chaplain Freeman, and I told him yes, I would. I'd look into all the requests that he made. We tried to contact Chaplain Freeman Saturday, but we weren't able to. The soonest we could reach him was Sunday morning. Chaplain was in the middle of the service, so he had one of his assistants call us back and let us know that after that service he would come over and pay Christopher a visit. Father Freeman had come to the stockade and spent some time with Christopher. Ames didn't know what was said, but he had suspicions. As Captain Ames explained, Chaplain Freeman and I, up until this point, had a very open relationship as far as the discussions he had with Christopher, because he, Freeman, felt it was general in nature, and he felt obligated, being somewhat an assistant to the confinement facility, to discuss these things with me, the confinement officer. So this is the approach that he had taken up until this point. However, after his discussion with Christopher on Sunday, he decided he could no longer discuss these things, and if I'm not mistaken, quote, unquote, he said, the things that Christopher and I have discussed today are sacramental. And to me, based on the extent to which we had discussed previous conversations between he and prisoner Christopher, I felt that prisoner Christopher had related something of importance to him and I did not inquire as to what it was, because it was, in fact, sacred. On Sunday afternoon, Ames said, following the priest's visit, a guard informed Ames that Christopher asked to see him. Ames went to the cell and found Christopher sitting on his bunk. He seemed to be disturbed or moved emotionally, said Ames. His eyes were kind of watery. I leaned over and said something like, What can I do for you? He looked up at me and he said, You know that thing in Buffalo? I said, Yes, I know what you're talking about. And he said, I did it. <laughs>
I looked at him in his eyes, and I said, I believe you. He looked at me and said, I know you do. And I asked him, Well, why do you want to tell me this? And the reason why I asked him that is because Friday, when he was in my office, we had discussed the fact that there was no trust. I didn't trust him, and he didn't trust me, so I wanted to know why me. And he said, Well, I just want to do what's right. I want to do right. Something to that effect. Then he said, What do I do from here? Where do I go from here? I kneeled down close to his cell where I could be on eye level with him because he was sitting on his bunk. I said, My God, give me strength. I don't know what to tell you, because he pretty much took me by surprise. Then I said, Well, I guess the best thing to do would be, Let's get those detectives and let you speak with them. But he said, No, they're not really Buffalo detectives. I checked their shields, and they weren't the real Buffalo shield. I said we could contact the CID, but he didn't want to talk to the CID either. At that point, the guard suggested that Christopher make a written statement, but he declined that as well. Ames continued. He didn't want to fill out a statement, but he said he would talk to a detective or investigator named Zach DeFusco. Ames asked Christopher how he knew DeFusco. Christopher wouldn't explain, except to say that Zach DeFusco was with the Buffalo police. He seemed very eager to speak to this person. Ames had written the name down phonetically. Lobbett and Rash, of course, were already familiar with both the name and the man. After concluding the interview with Rayford Ames, Lobbett and Rash returned to the CID office and contacted Major Morgan, Christopher's military attorney. Morgan advised them that he still represented Christopher on the military charges, and further that he had received a call on April 26th from Buffalo attorney Kevin Dillon, who was representing Christopher on any civilian matters. Dillon had instructed Morgan that he did not want Joseph Christopher questioned. Rash told Morgan that Christopher asked to speak with Buffalo police officers and that he and Lobbett were going to see him at the confinement center. Major Morgan said he would meet them there. Lobbin and Rash phoned the task force. Captain Henry Williams instructed them to make arrangements with the Army to have nurses Bernard Burgess and Dorothy Anderson fly to Buffalo as soon as possible. D.A. Edward Cosgrove had decided to present what they had to a grand jury. The pressure was on. Two Buffalo black leaders, Assemblyman Arthur Eve and Sheila Nixon, of the Black Leadership Forum, were meeting with Governor Hugh Carey to request appointment of a special state investigator because, Arthur Eve told the press, the black community has lost confidence in Cosgrove's conduct of the probe. Major Morgan had already visited Joseph Christopher by the time Lobbett and Rash returned to the stockade. As the men approached his cell, they heard Christopher say, Who's Lobbett? Those were the only words they'd hear him speak, despite their efforts. Christopher sat on his cot. They showed him their identification. He made no comment. They asked him if he believed they were Buffalo police officers. Christopher shook his head no. He smiled, reclined on his cot, and pulled the blanket over his face. The session was taped. It amounted to thirty minutes of Lobbett and Rash trying to convince Christopher that they really were officers from Buffalo.
Christopher made no verbal responses. According to the report filed later, he just smiled or smirked and kept pulling the blanket over his face. Major Eleanor Law had declined to speak with Lobbett and Rash on their first visit to Fort Benning. She had since consulted with her commanding officers and had been instructed to cooperate with investigators. Major Law, chief psychiatrist at Martin Army Hospital, had met with Christopher on a few occasions throughout his time in the psychiatric ward. On the morning of April 28th, she spoke with Mel Lobbett, Thomas Rash, and two detectives from New York City in the presence of CID agent Tom Carr. Asked about Joseph Christopher's current state of mind, Dr. Law told the investigators, At the present time, I would have to say he is suffering from a major or significant psychopathology. He is... I would refrain from offering any comment as to a diagnostic opinion, but I think it would be safe to say that he is significantly psychiatrically impaired. She had last seen Christopher on Friday. It was the first time she had spoken with him since learning of the statements he had made to nurses Burgess and Anderson. Of that Friday meeting, Major Law said, As we talked, my purpose, I think, was to try to establish in my own mind where he was in terms of this confession, whether his confession to the nurses was real or not. I asked him if he could talk to me about the confession that he made to the nurses, and initially he was reluctant to do so. Finally, he said to me, If I talk to you about it, what will happen? And my response to him was, If you tell me that you did do these things, you said nothing more to me than you said to Captain Burgess and Lieutenant Anderson. If you tell me that you did not do these things, then I think you've got significant problems that we're going to need to talk about. At that point, he paused and looked down at the floor and looked back up to me and said, Yep, I did it. And I said, You did the things that you said you did? And he said, Yes, it seems like a fantasy. At that point, he withdrew from me, as he very often does in talking with him. He sort of withdrew. He sat back in his chair, he closed his eyes, and my efforts to get him to elaborate further about the various incidents, even to get him to tell me about when they started, or, you know, if he could just give me some general details, he was unable to give me anything further. So that was essentially the nature of the conversation. Has Private Christopher been under any medication for his problems here? None, Law answered. He might say he refused all medications, but I'm not sure we would have given him anything anyway. Do you believe he has presence of mind and knows where he is, knows right from wrong? Lobbett asked. I think he's level with orientation in terms of knowing who he is and where he is, he very often seemed preoccupied and unable to participate in the interview process. It's difficult to pin down exactly why, but both myself and Dr. Levine and others would be compelled to feel that a very significant factor in that was the underlying psychopathology. Do you think he's telling the truth now, Major? The truth about... The truth about what he told the nurses actually about anything but specifically about the crimes. Again, I would have to really refrain from offering you an opinion at this point, Law replied. I just don't know. 
People oftentimes do have significant psychiatric problems for which they may feel guilty and will confess to things that they have not done. And I just, at this point in time, I mean, he's just not given us a great many details. It's very difficult to really offer a professional opinion about the truth or falseness of what he's saying. It would take a good bit more verbally from him before I would be able to offer you a professional opinion on it. Labad asked, Do you think he's the type of person that would tell the truth or try to avoid it by maybe standing mute? Silence can mean many things, Law replied, and this has been the difficulty we have had throughout this process with him, trying to interpret and understand his withdrawing behavior and his reluctance to speak. It can have meanings at all different levels. At one level, it can be a conscious attempt to avoid people. Another level, it can be an unconscious attempt to deny. At an even further level, it can represent very significant disorganization in his thinking processes, such that he's really unable to tell you what's going on inside his head. So in my opinion, at this point, we're limited because we don't have a lot of objective psychiatric data from the patient himself, and that has made it very, very difficult to pin down the exact reason for his reluctance to speak. Do you think he's conniving to be sent to Buffalo or a veteran's hospital to try to work himself back to Buffalo? I'd be surprised if that were the underlying motivation, she replied. I don't think so. Do you think he really has a problem trying to explain things? Do I think he has difficulty in explaining himself? Yes, I do, Law answered. I can't offer you the exact reason for that, but I think he does. Do you think he wants to tell the truth and confess but doesn't know how? Again, if you're asking me to read into this beyond what I have stated, I'm hesitant to do that, okay? I can't really offer you a solid opinion on that. Do you think that we are wasting our time trying to interview him? Labad asked. Well, I think you're going to have a difficult time if his behavior is consistent with what we've seen on the ward, and I think it is consistent. There have been various people who've attempted to interact with him. I don't know of anyone in the period of time that we've had involvement with him over six weeks who has been able to establish good rapport with him. Labad asked, Do you find that any time he did want to speak, that he initiated the action? Very much the opposite, Dr. Law said. Most often, someone here on the staff initiated any interaction with him. Now, intermittently, and this seemed to be a reflection of the degree of stress he was under, intermittently he would offer something to us spontaneously, and that happened on several occasions while he was here. But usually that would start out with something spontaneous, but then he would very quickly withdraw from us again. In your interviews with him in treatment, does he have any hang-ups about blacks, black males? Labad asked. Not that he's ever verbalized to me. Major, if we were to talk to Joseph Christopher, could you suggest any approach that would be of more help to us in initiating a conversation with him? Well, I think you have to understand that you're dealing with an individual who doesn't think like you or I. 
I really can't offer you a great deal of advice because none of us have been terribly successful in getting him to trust us enough to speak with us. And I think that that's the basic issue, that he has a difficult time establishing trust. From what I've seen and observed, I don't see anything in the immediate future that's going to change the way he interacts with the world. Again, I think what information has been gained has come about during periods of stress. I think that has been the factor that's given us the information that we've gotten thus far. Based on your experience and your knowledge of Joseph Christopher and the type of psychotic problem he has, is he capable of that much violence on other males by himself? It's difficult for me to give you that kind of... to qualify in that way, Dr. Law answered. I recognize a certain difficulty he has with impulses that would suggest to me that he does have potential for doing things impulsively. Now, the degree to which he does those things, I couldn't tell you. But I can tell you that my observations have been that he has very poor impulse control. There was an incident at the very end of the interview that I had with him on Friday that I think speaks to this issue of impulsivity. Just after he told me of his being involved in this killing, I told you he sort of withdrew from me, like he sat back in the chair and closed his eyes and wouldn't respond any further to my questions. And after a few minutes of this, in my efforts to sort of get past that with him, kind of get him to talk to me, he sat up all of a sudden with a sort of wide-eyed look on his face. He reached over and grabbed my breast, and I reached up and grabbed his hand and pushed it down and told him that that was inappropriate. At the same time, he made a statement that he would like to fuck me, and I said, that's not possible. At that point, I stood up to get away from him, and he reached over and tried to grab me again, and I told him to keep his hands to himself. Captain Allen was just outside the door, and he came in at that point. But I think, again, he was quite stressed by the questioning, and his way of dealing with that stress was to try to intimidate me with this kind of a statement, and then the behavior that followed. I don't think that was the first time this kind of behavior had occurred with people trying to work with him. Apparently, while I was away, there were several incidences here on the ward where this sort of thing had come up. Now, this sort of behavior in someone who's seriously disturbed, who's never committed any offense, occurs also. I mean, this is not uncommon behavior for someone who has significant psychopathology. An investigator asked, it's like impulsive behavior? Like he doesn't know the reason why he's doing it? Well, I'm interpreting it. I'm giving you my interpretation of his behavior. I don't think he was saying to himself, I've got to intimidate this woman. It happened on an unconscious level. I don't think it was by design. I think that it just happened. I find that with law enforcement officers that it seems to be a game that he wants to play with us, said Lobbit. See who was smarter, or who's got more power than the other. Yeah. Again, now I'm not sure at what level this operates, said Dr. Law. I don't think he's consciously saying, I'm going to play a game with these people. But I think there is a need on his part to feel powerful in a situation, and one way of feeling powerful is to manipulate other people and I think that's what's going on there. 
He needed to feel powerful because he feels very, very weak underneath it all. Major, did he specifically tell you that he did the crimes in Buffalo or New York City or both places or anywhere? He gave me no further details than what I told you. The only thing he would acknowledge to me was that he had done things that he had said he had done and that it seemed like a fantasy to him now. Those were his words. Context of White Supremacy. That is audio segment number one. We will pick up like uh, we did not even get through chapter 14 like these some of these chapters are quite chunky like uh man anyway picking up in chapter 14 kevin Dillon and mark mahoney tried unsuccessfully to borrow the testimony of the psychiatric nurses that's what we'll start at in chapter 14 audio segment number two in the meantime the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Drop a line if you have commentary questions on the text that we're reading. Uh, again, asking folks ponder what do we make of many many white people that we've talked to, professors. Folks who live in Buffalo, teach at the University of Buffalo, write about racism in Buffalo, and they don't know about these events, don't know about Joseph G. Christopher. What do we make of that? Are they lying to us? Make sure we get that in there, too. Are they just coming on and lying about it? They do know all about this case, and they're just lying and saying that they don't. What do we, what do we make of all of this as we continue to read? Many folks uh, wrote in uh, after last week's session. So get on my grind here and see if we can get all of the reading in. Number one. Hi, Gus. Just listened to the reading from this week's book club. After the first section of the reading, this part of the title caught my attention. Absolute madness. Yes. Racism, white supremacy or white culture is absolute madness. Joey epitomizes white culture especially the violent and homoerotic parts of their culture the deceptive parts of the culture came out in the way his family and neighbors protected him the over sympathizing with this killer and his mother was sickening the most deceptive person in this book is the author Catherine Pellinero she created a fictitious characterization of Joey which made him seem like a well-meaning good white male he's a serial killer exclamation point however the black males were negatively described and almost seemed 
like they deserve being killed by this white male. I'm sure this book would read differently if the wor- if the world context was justice, guaranteeing that no one is mistreated and guaranteeing that the ones who need help the most get the most help. Thank you so much. This is absolutely mandatory reading and a constructive use of my time and energy best vegan rd i believe with connections to new york state definitely a part of local history now uh, i'll get in one more email and then uh we'll push off let's see oh i got can oh here we go oh my goodness yeah i read this one saturday when i got it i'll read again different reader she writes and i've been asking has anyone heard of joey and no one I have and no one has I found out my sister-in-law her father is from Buffalo I asked them to ask if he knew Joey they got back with me and told me he responded immediately asking why they were asking to make a long story short his girlfriend at the time that is the father of her sister-in-law his girlfriend at the time was one of the victims whose heart was removed so again that would have to be Ernest Shorty Jones Cowbell or Parlor Edwards they didn't tell me his name I asked them if they could ask him I would try to get more information Uh, her father also resides in Akron Ohio Jalen Walker home of the recent police shooting this study has been amazing asking questions wow just wondering why we haven't heard of this man that again and again how is it that we haven't and then reportedly all of these white people they hadn't either gotta think on that as we're continuing down the the back end of the book how can that happen is this not important we've been listening along for a while now let's see get we have lots of emails let me see uh, I guess we'll get the callers I'll get the callers and then we'll continue to sprinkle in emails as we proceed folks who dialed in with commentary to share Let's see while folks are. Uh, I'm in a noisy environment right now. You have to come back to me. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, not a problem. We'll give you a few minutes and then check in again. Robin San Diego. Thank you for letting us preserve the uh, audio quality of the program. Good, sir. I will get in, sneak in another email while we, before we get to some of our other folks who dialed in then. Uh, so we got one, two down. Number three. All right. <clears throat> Different investor wrote in she writes I haven't shared my thoughts on this book yet so I have several things to say I will try not to say things that have already been said and I think I can go in chronological order Uh, this followed the dedication to her father here's health to you and to our core which we are proud to serve in many a strife we fought for life and never lost our nerve if the army and the navy ever look on heaven's scenes they will find the streets are guarded with the United States Marines. Now, I found this to be weird. Why do there need to be race soldiers with guns in the afterlife? 
never know. Might be one of those raping negros has got through the pearly gates. Who is in heaven that they need to kill? I just told you. If you have to kill people, is it really heaven? This poem or whatever it is made me ask myself a lot of questions. Racism is man's gravest threat to man. The maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. I don't know who Abraham Herschel is, but I think that statement is inaccurate. White people have a big reason to practice racism, to continue their existence in the universe. I disagree with the way they have decided to go about achieving their goal objective, but that doesn't mean they don't have one. Page 13. Uh, Pastoka was a police officer out of a precinct in South Buffalo, but worked security at this tops on the east side of the city as a second front job. A couple of things about this line. I get calling it a second job, but why call it a second front job? Is this a reference to World War II? And another thing, are there police officers hanging out at the Whole Foods in areas where white people live and shop, or do the police only work at grocery stores in areas where Negroes are warehoused? I am not sure. I know they have security at most, if not all, of the Whole Foods here in Seattle. I'm not sure if they are enforcement officers. I do know that many officers work a second job doing security at clubs, uh, and perhaps even grocery stores, that that is very common and can be a lucrative source of income. This has been controversial too, because sometimes they're working all this money and conflict of interest. This came up with death row records. We talked about that with labyrinth. Anywho, continuing page 13 had he had seen the same young man exit the store only a minute before and had therefore been a little suspicious, wondering at first if this was some sort of ruse to get him outside. Wow, Glenn Dunn had been shot and Larry Robinson ran into the store to notify law enforcement only to have the officer think this sneaky Negro is trying to lure me out of the store for some sort of nefarious reason. Time and again, white people tell us and even more that they show us that they are suspicious of non-white black people. I guess I'm just wondering how long it will take for us collectively to get suspicious of them. I just watched the FBI files uh, report or, or YouTube video, whatever episode on this. They portray the officer at the tops as a black male. Not that it matters, but just maybe as a white person, who knows, but they did have him portrayed as a black person. The blood had thickened already, but the victim eyes wide open and pupils dilated was still trying to breathe missed all radio for an ambulance and for a tow truck and told dispatch to notify homicide and the evidence unit Glenn Dunn was still alive is it SOP standard operating procedure to call homicide when you don't even have a dead person I don't know I'm not in law enforcement I can't tell if this was callous behavior or him just being prepared for whatever happens what do you all think about this page 16 though never a high-end part of town it had been a comfortable and safe at least for residents who looked and lived like their neighbors which was pretty much everybody things were changing though translate the people who lived in this area were not rich but they were white residents could be comfortable and safe as long as they were white but the negroes were coming page 82 always priding himself on being a man of law and order, Ed Cosgrove had spent two years as a special agent in the FBI. Law and order, this term is in the word guide. Part of what it says is, avoid using this term. 
notes the term law and order has often been used to mean a way of so-called justifying the force of people to cooperate with the maintenance of a non-just situation many people have done incorrect and non-just things and explained it all away by saying that they did those things for the purpose of maintaining law and order according to compensatory logic a law is anything that is done page 104 Buffalo Mayor James Jimmy Sixpack Griffin and Reverend Barnett Smith appeared on television together that evening appealing for the community to remain calm reminding viewers that Buffalo was the city of good neighbors Buffalo being called the city of good neighbors reminds me of the book Milwaukee Massacre about Jeffrey Dahmer I think it said Milwaukee was an Algonquin word meaning the good place but for non-white black people both of these areas seem to be full of dangers and difficulties the irony page 108 troopers wanted to speak with a black man who told the Reverend Bennett Smith that he had been traveling in his own car behind the bus when another car carrying two white men and a white woman had tried to force him off the road a few minutes before the bus driver was injured Smith told reports reporters that the man had given the car's license plate number to police on the night of the occurrence but Captain Williams said he had been unable to find any officer who may have been given the number this is such a recurring theme in this book and on the planet white people routinely do not give or share information that could lead to other white people being punished this seems to have been codified major theme in this here book page 110 when Jesse Jackson goes to Buffalo one of the things he said was if we have a if we have political power we can demand the district attorney to take action I think that statement was accurate but the if at the beginning is really important if this then that what happens when white people decide not to do whatever it is that the people classified as black are demanding if there isn't some sort of logical punitive response then they are not demanding they are making a request people with power make demands people with comparatively less power make requests that seems logical I know these notes are from the beginning of the book I'll try to get my notes from later in the book typed up and submitted when I have time thanks for making interesting and relevant choices for the book club I really appreciate it reading more important than watching television much obliged alright knocked out about half of the emails alright let's see uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed greetings everyone uh, I uh, I would uh, suspect uh, that uh, that white people are the ones, who, especially the ones that have been on your program and others like them. I'm talking about well, well educated professionally and scientific white people uh, are aware, especially the ones who write about racism, especially the ones who write about racism in Buffalo. Uh, that has been on your program, uh, that they are, I, I would not be surprised that they are aware of this particular case. Uh, 
And uh, I would say that white people in general uh, do not want to uh, uh, bring up a large assortment of behaviors that white people do on a on a uh, off time basis uh, because that may either bring more awareness to victims of racist white supremacy uh, and or it would be more of a exposure beyond what they would like to it, it would it will bring more exposure to racism white supremacy that they they don't want to do that because they profit off of it especially the white people who write about racism and talk about racism they profit from from that and uh they could solve this problem actually in 15 minutes as i heard mr fuller say uh and so it's within them to not want to solve the problem and the whole idea of of uh seeing something that is worthy of their research and neglecting not to do it and pick it up the more popular or more recent incident and just brief over it uh is something that uh is wouldn't be strange to me uh if that if what i'm saying is absolutely true uh but i i really do think it's it's true that their their uh desire for racism white supremacy to continue because it's profitable for 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 them for to exist forever and uh those are my thoughts on i think some of the questions that you were asking that's it much obliged retired firefighter in florida uh folks again ponder on that their question what do we make white scholars experts not being informed about this right there in buffalo uh let's see i will i'll read one more then maybe we'll check in with robin san diego again see if other folks have commentary as well totally different investor wrote in uh, male victim of racism this time around I've been listening to the most recent book club reading of absolute madness and I finally understand when you say white guests only I used to pass over the interviews with some of these guests but now it is must listen one observation from listening to reading of, of listening to the reading of absolute madness early on the white woman that witnessed the 22 caliber killer and said nothing madonna gorney according to the book she stated that she did she didn't sense any malevolence i can only assume she was not using one of the five senses we all possess but sixth sense which is indeed absolute madness now, this is two times I watched the FBI files uh, episode on this case, which is a disgrace. I mean, F. And what did I say? You mentioned this case. 
you don't mention the Atlanta child murders or vice versa. That's automatic F. They didn't mention the Atlanta child murders F. And I said, I didn't even have to watch this. I knew just looking at the time, 45 minutes, this is going to be a bunch of, what did, what did he say? What Timmy, what Timothy Wise say? Pseudoscientific BS. I said, that's what this is going to be. Again, to give you a frame of reference, we didn't even finish one chapter today. We did about 55 minutes of audio. And I mean, that's not counting the intro, me talking, nothing. Straight 55 minutes of audio narration. We didn't even finish one chapter. And the YouTube content is 45 minutes of, I mean, they left out everything. Everything. One thing that is there Madonna Gorney, you can't actually see her. That's the white woman. They didn't even do that correctly. Madonna Gorney is the white woman, as he stated. Glenn Dunn is going to be killed 14 year olds at the Topps grocery store east side. They, uh, oh, the ice cream truck. Remember, they got the report about the ice cream truck song and racism? Anyway, uh, Madonna Gorney goes to the store and she fixates on all these black males. She even sees Glenn Dunn. Like, oh man, he's outside fidgeting. I could be raped. Ooh, 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 ooh. She sees, uh, Joseph Christopher sitting outside. Now, this is in the FBI files thing. They interview her and she says, I see this guy. And there had been crime in the area. And we got all these nigger males. And oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Ah, that's in the book where she said that she was the only white person and she saw a white face and she felt better. Now, she didn't say that in the interview, of course, or she said it, they edited it out. But she just said, uh, I didn't feel safe. There had been a lot of crime. And I figured if something went down, I looked over at this white guy and thought, oh, okay, there, he's there. She said she got up on him and he looks kind of dopey. I said, man, he's not going to be any help if they try and come and rape and loot me. You know, I can't depend on him for anything at all. And so she kept on going in the store. That is in the in the video, although it's not quite written up that way in the book where she makes it explicitly racial. But that is Madonna Gorney. Uh, four emails down chugging right along let's see uh, we will double check Rob in San Diego is it still loud there I can get in a few of my notes or maybe it's a little bit quieter let's see Rob in San Diego uh, yes sir okay uh, yeah I'm on the plantation actually uh, so just really quickly I wanted to comment um, on the uh, part about uh, the black male that was actually uh, smoking marijuana uh, with Christopher. I uh, thought that was um, possibly a pretty dangerous situation. Uh, me being from Milwaukee, um, being familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, knowing how dangerous it is being intoxicated around um, some of these uh, people that's not, well, I won't say not necessarily stable, but just around some people. And the last thing that I wanted to comment on was um, the black male stated that uh, Joseph Christopher attempted to date a female that didn't want to date him. And then a black male ended up dating her. But what really stood out to me was that she stated, um, I'm not dating that one. I'm not dating that whitey. And uh, thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Rob, formerly 
of Wisconsin, the land of good old Jeffrey Dahmer. That's two mentions on the program today for old JD. Um, mm, mm. Ernie Smith is the black male that he's uh, talking about who used to uh, smoke a little reefer with old uh, Joey back in the good old days sobriety would be best think is how he says it get to some of my notes see if we can get in the rest of our emails as well uh, notes that I took uh, from this week chapter 14 uh, right where Robin San Diego formerly Wisconsin uh, so they're talking with oh now this is not even Ernie this is with uh, Joey's friend Peter Tramontina who introduced him to Donna and they used to be cool or what have you for some period Peter said he's a white guy. Peter says he acknowledged that Joe had once used a lot of marijuana. Now, even for that, I would need context. Like, what does that mean? A lot of marijuana. How much are we talking about on a daily basis? How much are we talking about? And and particularly the program that we have coming next week about Dr. Welsing. She said some years ago, about a decade ago, hey, cannabis use and psychosis current reports saying the same thing cannabis use and psychosis this is a young person whose brain is still developing who apparently has and not just cannabis they talked about him using all kinds of drugs speed all the rest of it hey all of these brain altering substances what sort of impact does that have hmm uh, they say so this is all Peter uh, still talking. He says, uh, Joe had been concerned about the loss of the weapon. Uh, might cause him to lose his pistol permit and thereby the control of the weapons that had been personal property of his father, which he definitely wanted to keep in the family. Joe had ultimately thought that the Beretta was stolen from the basement by a black male utility meter reader. Black males get blamed for every so we had black male cost me lose my job black male stole my gun black male got the woman that I wanted just oh my god these black males are to blame for everything you stole my buck knife that's even later in the notes Christopher had been an auto mechanic for major an auto mechanics major at Burgard High School a vocational school on the city's east side now I thought that's important they said he had enough problems on the bus that his dad told him he could ride to school. If he's in a part of town that is so-called, uh-oh, the Negras are coming. Used to be safe if everybody looked like you, but the Negras are coming. And now we got to so-called integrate the schools and all the rest of it. Is that motivation? I mean, if they're looking for a reason, why did he do this and death wish and did his sister get raped like the Negras are invading the neighborhood and my school would that be reason enough certainly many 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 other generations of white people have responded in the exact same manner killing black people and fatal lethal violence against the black people when too many Negras move into their neighborhood try to go to school with them continues let's see they said uh, next they spoke with is this still talking to Peter 
Oh, they're still talking to Peter, uh, where he worked, I guess, with all these different folks. They go to talk to some of the people that he worked with. And they said they asked if he had ever shown any animosity towards black people. They said no. They were asked about any guns Christopher may have had, but they knew of none. This is when they go to talk to the people that he used to work with. They told the investigators that if they were looking at Christopher as possibly being the 22 caliber killer, killer, he looked nothing like the composite. Many people said that, even Cal's listener, Cal's listeners. Christopher was a short, stocky guy with curly, kinky hair. That's in the word guy. Don't use eat. His hair doesn't really look kinky to me, but let's see. Whatever that means. Uh, let's see. Next, uh, they go talk to different folks who worked with Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, Lee Chamberlain and his wife. They go talk with them. Uh, they had Joe do work on his vehicles and what have you. Peter told him Joe was in the army. The man could offer a little else, but told the officer that, that, that if they were looking at Joe as being involved in the 22 caliber killings, they were barking up the wrong tree. Metaphor. Christopher looked nothing like the sketches again, and his hair wasn't blonde. That comes up repeatedly about the hair, him not having blonde hair, the sketches having blonde hair, and that's going to come up in the uh, from some of the witnesses and what have you as we get closer to the trial and all that good stuff. Uh, let's see. Asked if Christopher had ever indicated any dislike for blacks, they responded no. On the contrary, Mrs. Bianchi recalled that Joe had defended blacks when she had voiced complaints about them. Now, I'd be interested from her. I know she's not the suspected killer here, but what exactly were your complaints about the Negroes, Mrs. Bianchi? Just, you know, our clarification. This doesn't have to go in the record, but yeah, just, you know. Uh, let's see. Mr. Becker was also asked about the possibility of any of the Christopher girls having been assaulted or injured by any person, in particular a black male, during the past years. Becker recalled no such incident. I, I mean, even the fact that this has to be investigated, that this gets brought up over and over and over. Maybe the person saw Death Wish. Maybe the person, someone in their family was raped by a Negro. Are you sure one of his sisters wasn't raped by a Negro? Did a Negro male touch you? You sure he didn't do anything? Try and put his penis on you? Like, really that happens like what white people have someone some black male wrong someone in their family and they got to go out and, and hack and kill a dozen black people like for real they said the justification for all of this the question of whether any Joseph sisters had been assaulted by a black male had come up in the wake of publicity generated by the search police had received a couple of anonymous calls one came from a person who claimed that one of the sisters had been raped by a Negro male. Another told the police officer that Joseph Christopher had two or three older sisters and that one of them was involved with a black male and had a baby by a black male and that when Nicholas Christopher found out about this, he died. Like, are you serious? I know that's like major part of the white code. No marrying a Negra and white women are not supposed to be producing offspring with Negras, certainly not to any great numbers. But I mean, are you serious? This is what drove him bonkers using their terminology. One of his sisters ran off and eloped with a Negra and it was such a traumatic event. It killed the father and drove the son crazy where he had to go out and start tacking up Negras. Why do what? <laughs> come on, come on, come on. 
Uh, let's see. The tipster believed that there was a possibility that Joseph was killing blacks because he thought his sister's relationship with a black male had caused his father's death. Like, are you serious? Come on. Zach said that to the best of his knowledge, none of the sisters had been involved with a black male or had a black baby. The allegation that Nicholas Christopher died upon learning that one of his daughters had a black baby was patently false. Thank God. Nicholas had died of long-term heart disease, probably smoked cigarettes, ate a lot of red meat. The majority of what was seized in the searches was ammunition and spent shells. At the Weber house, police had taken a total of nine boxes of various 22 caliber ammunition. They also they had also confiscated a cigar box, Wellsing moment with 10 spent 22 caliber casings, a pistol barrel, a bullet, a bullet, a Ruger rotary magazine, two gun stocks and debris from the bullet trap, which again, they talked about it saying, oh my gosh, last week they made a big to do saying he had a firing range in his house and it's nothing but a bullet trap. I don't know anybody who has a bullet trap in their house, much less, much less one that has been used. We actually fire in the basement at the old bullet trap. Uh, they took six knives, a black knit watch cap, a leather hat, and a fatigue green army style jacket that appeared to have flecks of blood on the sleeve. They have newspaper reports talking about that. The jacket and hats had been recovered from Joseph's bedroom. Dun dun dun. Many Negroes have been locked up for far less. Anthony Broadwater. Detective Reagan paid a call on Kenny at his home. Reagan asked if he knew. Oh, this is Kenny Paulson now. Ding ding. That's what I said. Theme for the book. So, Madonna Gorney, white woman. She, after I said she went through the parking lot and felt better seeing a white face that was the 22 caliber killer, Joey. And then she forgot to tell the police about Joey. At first, she had to come back and be reminded later on. Like, oh, yeah, that goofy looking white kid was there, too. Kenny Paulson, the exact opposite. This is the white witness who police said, hey, we think Kenny is lying to us because he does not want to indict a white man as the suspect in the killer of a 14 year old black child. That's Kenny Paulson. Regan paid a call on Kenny at his home. Reagan asked if he knew Joseph Christopher. Kenny said he'd never heard of him. He might possibly have seen him around, he said, but he didn't know him by name. Kenny insisted that he didn't know the assailant and didn't get a good look at his face. Reagan had him describe again how the man had left the scene of the homicide 14 year old black child in Reagan's opinion it would be nearly impossible for Kenny not have seen for Kenny to not have seen at least a partial portion of the shooter's face either a side view or full frontal view Reagan noted in his report that Kenny Paulson was extremely nervous when questioned as to his knowledge of the homicide and whether or not he knew the shooter either from the neighborhood or personally Paulson said that he'd be glad to take a polygraph test to remove him from any contact in the case now I mean you gotta be joking I thought lying to an enforcement officer in a murder case, a serial murder case? Isn't that a crime? Call it obstruction of what, what's that we said? If we didn't have a system of racism, we would have a system of justice. That's what they call it. Obstruction of justice. Ch Kenny Paulson should be charged. That's system of white supremacy racism too. We're not talking, many people lied in the O.J. Simpson trial that people remember 
It wasn't just Mark Furman. It was lots of people. This is totally different. You saw the crime. This isn't Jill Shively. Remember her making up, oh, I saw Rental James. He did it. I saw him. He almost ran me down. Rental James, yes. You saw this is the opposite. I did see the killing. But I, you know, my memory is bad. I, you know, I think, uh, I don't know. He might have been a black fellow or Puerto Rican. I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really. Do you know this fellow? Oh, no. I, I, no, no, no. I, I don't know. We didn't go to school or no, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know this fellow at all. No, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, he killed a fortune. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Shame what he did to old Glenn Dunn. But he's, you know, no count car thief. You know, nigger males. You got to watch him. Are you serious? And this is the same shooting the other white woman forgot. Oh, yeah, that dopey white guy. And she said, she said, she said in the, uh, the, the wacky YouTube video, which is lame, she said he didn't look malevolent. Put the big word on it. You had to say, you know, he didn't look like a bad dude, you know? Look like a well-meaning white man. Let's see. Pause. Make sure I get in all our emails. I lost count. We had so many. I do appreciate the folks who wrote in because I did say the book is mandatory. So I guess if people paused to write in, maybe it's worthy of their time and energy to learn about this case. Uh, Totally different investor uh, wrote in. Uh, Greetings, Gus. Uh, I'm finding the text fascinating and constructive, particularly since I used to reside in New York City during this time period and currently have family members living in New York State. Have yet to find one who remembers Christopher and they don't seem particularly interested in finding out more about these events. That is exactly what is said in Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr.'s book. Nobody cared about these deaths at the time and nobody cares now might be true about the May 20 2022 shooting at the tops in Eastside Buffalo (sighs) continues Uh, I could not find anything about the 1996 incident at Canisius College. However, I did come across a 2016 incident on the campus. December 13, 2016, WBFO NPR Canisius Investigation finds racist dorm incident not a hate crime. A black doll was found on an elevator with a noose around the neck and social media posts about Trump fans. I know of the school from its history in college basketball. It's considered one of the mid-major school's last appearance in the NCAA Division I tournament in 1996. I suspect black students are highly represented on the team. So this is again what happened in 1996 at Canisius College that caused faculty students to take out an entire page advertisement to denounce bigotry and hate on the campus what happened October 1996 hmm continuing chapter 14 number one Mr. Becker possibility of any of the Christopher girls having been assaulted in particular a black male police uh, received anonymous call one came from a person who claimed that one of the sisters had been raped by a black male 
I bet the race soldiers pursue this area of investigation vigorously. I mean, hey, we get a definitive. This didn't happen. So apparently they, you know, were able to close that out, did take it seriously. What a disgrace. Number two, Angela always had been, always had been the protective older brother. Uh, he once made her a snow fort in the backyard at Weber when she was seven years old. He carved it out of out of a snowbank. Cynthia Wiggins. She loved him. He was a normal brother, a very good brother. Given the deception engaged by a suspected racist, I wonder if the family is not being forthcoming regarding Christopher's childhood behavior. Did he torture pets as a child, which is common among serial killers? For example, that is a excellent point. Really. All of the all of these folks coming out with all of these oh my lord Christopher was such a great worker and Joey just worked so hard and he slaved and raked the whole yard and shoveled the snow and changed my engine and rotated my tires and he did it all for twenty five cents. I mean, oh my gosh, he's the greatest in that like are you serious? All these folks have are even the folks saying about his parents, like, hey, you are a parent, you know your child. You know whether you got a scholar, a book nerd, serial killer, whatever. You know your child. She was a nurse. They pointed that out. You should know. You should be picking up on signs from your child. They're like, man, Joey is not, I don't know. We need to get him some help. He is not. And all these narcotics. They said she did know about that. Continues. Number three, Joe Christopher and I were genuinely good friends. We worked, socialized, exercised, and went fishing together. Ernie Smith blackmailed. Joe had never exhibited any racial hatred. Ernie didn't believe Joe was a racist. If Joe was a racist, and particularly anti-black, he would know since Ernie himself was black. We were close friends. Confusion can be so lethal for non-white victims. Again, Ernie Smith is a big character in the second half of the book, so we'll get to hear a lot from Mr. Ernie Smith. Number four, Ernie said once in a while Joe would want to go fool around with street Rick James I didn't get Rick James in today just because oh my gosh I have so much more Rick James to go we have so much more of the story to go my goodness Rick James Joe would want to fool around with street girls but we never picked any up Joe tried to score with this black girl think she and Joe almost came to blows the knife incident strained their friendship after that we were just about through then I had a little fight with a guy at Canisius a white guy later Joe came to me and said you're supposed to be a big man I told him to cut it out and I walked away I didn't want to fight with Joe his buck knives and guns by street girls I guess he means prostitutes that's what I thought. Now, I did think of immediately Rick James street songs. Just look at the album cover or the album artwork, I will say. But that's exactly I don't anybody out listening. If you if, if it's not prostitutes, sex workers, if that's what they want to say for 21st century vernacular, if that's not what it is. Let me know. Or if you have a different guess, what else could they be talking about? street girls Ernie Smith picked up on the violent tendencies of Christopher but possibly due to white identification still tried to engage him in friendship was Christopher studying Ernie Smith testing his skills planning for the future hmm 
Number five, witnesses to the 22 caliber killings and the Buffalo stabbings failed to pick Christopher out of a photo lineup that included some of the 23 photographs. I guess they didn't feel the need to manipulate the lineup as they did for Alice Seabold and Anthony Broadwater. Ooh, the burn, but it is the same state and the same year. Same month, really. Number six, Captain Railford, and this has been like seven months too, like from witnesses for the people in like September like oh my god now he got to come back in May and look at a photograph and oh man number six Captain Rayford Christopher wanted food Ames believed that Christopher was going to proposition him Ames had read a hospital report that stated Christopher had previously made a homosexual proposition I told him look Christopher I'll do whatever I can do to help you while you're in here so as long as it's within the regulations but don't make a homosexual proposition to me because it won't profit you I'm not homosexual I don't know if you're homosexual but making a proposition towards me won't gain you anything and I asked him was he homosexual and he said no Captain Ames who was black the delectable negro human consumption and homoeroticism within U.S. slave culture by Vincent Woodard Cal's book club and Gus's top 10 personally man we're going to have to pay attention like we have a lot of book to go so over the next weeks months really as we are finishing the second half of this book I don't think Joey sexually propositions anyone but black males Other than Kim Edmonston, the only people that are violently attacked in this book are non-white males, mostly black males. The only people that are propositioned with some sort of anti-sexual conduct are also black males. Unless I'm in air, we have to pay attention as we keep rolling. But I mean, we that is another one what in the world that's also why I said now if that pattern holds that's why I said Colin Cole that's the black male who survived and tried to choke him in the hospital did he know this guy especially they said Colin Cole is the one he had feminine tendencies he was out he was out dressing like a female I'm done I'm done I don't even want to read no more he said that I said that in the book when they said he wasn't just out engaged in criminal activity he was out dressing like a female street girl I said that then like man does he know this guy they said they mentioned that in the YouTube video they said man Colin Cole was the only black guy on the floor like dang how did you find this guy do you know him already did you try to have sex with him already I don't even want to read I don't even want to read like I'm done I said that I asked Joe uh, McGuire that I asked him that directly Man, that doesn't prove that he knew him, but oh man, if he's out on the prostitute thing anyway, yes, I think it's easily possible he could have bumped into Colin Cole or some other black male, because I mean, really, it seems like that's really what his focus is about. It's not these black females. That might be, you know, hey, yeah, we can go do that to mess around, but I mean, hey, matter of fact, let me get back to the notes. <sighs> Father Freeman, Sunday, this is number seven. Sunday he decided he could no longer discuss these things and if I'm not mistaken quote unquote he said these th the things that Christopher and I have discussed today are sacramental so Christopher gave you important information regarding his crimes question mark hiding behind the religion of white supremacy 
Now, I think sometimes this is supposed to be privileged information, right, in the stockades, maybe. But, I mean, woo, if you've been sharing all along, why clam up now, metaphor? Number, lost my place. Number eight, I kneeled down close to his cell where I could be on eye level with him because he was sitting on his bunk. I said, my God, give me strength. I don't know what to tell you because he pretty much took me by surprise. Fascinating demonstration of how we are trained to have empathy for these terrorists. Amen. I'd be thinking like, wow, if you did these, you killed all these black males and I'm black. Let me back up, brother. (laughs) Man, don't know what you've got in store. My goodness. Number nine. Dr. Law, he reached over and grabbed my breast and I reached up and grabbed his hand and pushed it down and told him that was inappropriate. At the same time, he made a statement that he would like to fuck me. And I said, that's not possible. At that point, I stood up to get away from him and he reached over and tried to grab me again. But I think again, he was quite stressed by the questioning. Would the doctor seemingly calmly push down the inmate's hand if he had been a rental James? Or would she have called in the soldiers for a beatdown, moreover, excusing his behavior due to stress? A man, say it five times, if that had been a rental James. Emmett Till. Tamir Rice. And you got an armed, white, trained killer right outside. He would have been beaten down. She is probably a trained killer. You don't get to be in the military without, man, she could have probably killed him with some dental floss. Like, come on. Come on. Number 10. Didn't get that far. We'll stop right there. Now, let me get back to this. Yeah, let me get back to know. See if we can get to that part where uh, Mr. Ernie Smith, I told you he's so important. We have to really pay it. This is a pivotal black dude. uh, Second half of the book. And I think he does testify on the trials. We really have to pay attention when Ernie Smith talks because he was one of his friends. Grady Lewis, my man who hung out with uh, Peyton Gendron for two hours at the tops a couple months ago. All right, so back to my notes. Uh, There was no peace of mind to be had at Weber. The steady knocks on the door and the constant ringing of the phone and the people who drove by the house to shout vulgarities or fling M80s into the driveway. Like, I need to look at the paper like to see when was this <laughs> throwing M80s in? Is this like, are you like throwing the right? Remember, they had the heart fun and they are cheering him on. Are you throwing M80s for him to continue the killing of black people or what does that signify? That's that's like a right on, right? Like you need to go and do more. Let's see if we can get you a more powerful weapon. That's what that is, right? Next, uh, let's see. All this about the fort, I agree with the person who wrote in. Is that all oh, this could be a lie? Like the family doing their defense that Joe was just wonderful and he couldn't have possibly done all of this. I why was this included that he built a snowman? Like for real? all of the details and information in this book and we got to spend all this time talking about a snowman a snow castle that he built as a child whiteness of snow like come on uh he was normal he was a very good like come on come on all of this is just i didn't hear this much about any of the victims none of them i haven't heard this much sympathy about any black person in the book let's see Oh, we back to Ernie, back to Ernie, back to Ernie. Okay. Uh, Joey 
and I were genuinely good friends. We worked, socialized, exercised, and went fishing together. Ernie Smith had been Joe's partner on the maintenance crew at Canisius College. Again, like, obviously, Ernie doesn't listen to the cows. You do not kick it with your white homies at work. You're not going fishing with them, hunting with them. Are you see, they got a case of a black dude. He went hunting with some of his white homies that ended up dead. I don't know if they was coworkers or not. This is recent, like within the last couple of years or so. Uh, exercise. They're like, are you serious? Are you serious? Come on. Continues. Ernie said that he couldn't see Joey as the so-called 22 caliber killer. Uh, oh, we read that. I got that. Uh, let's see. And, and, and even not back up for that. He further felt that if Joe was a racist and particularly anti-black, he would know since Ernie himself was black. That statement right there, man, no black person should ever say that. Like black people are so confused about racism, white supremacy. Like and we don't even recognize that we're confused. That is like the last thing you ever want to hear from a victim of racism. But I would say, especially, especially somebody classified as black. Hey, if there is an expert on racism, it is me. I'm black. I've been Negro my whole life. I mean, now, if Peyton Gendron was racist, I would know. Like, oh, man, we are in trouble. <laughs> like, run for the hills. Uh, let's see. They often went out together, shot pool, Dr. Welsing moment again, or have a drink. Sobriety would be best. Although Joe wasn't much of a drinker, Ernie acknowledged that the two of them used to get high. Oh, though Ernie limited himself to marijuana. You don't even know that. If Joey is supplying the reefer, how do you know what he's laced it with? They want to talk about Bill Cosby slipping you a Mickey. Come on, Jeffrey Dahmer. Sobriety would be best, and you are for sure not drinking, smoking, sniffing, snorting, nothing with someone classified as white ever, especially on a coworker. Like, are you serious? He could go rat you out. Man, I seen Ernie smoking reefers. <laughs> like, you need to dirt test him. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, wait, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Ernie also described how the two of them were into physical fitness. Joe is very strong. We used to work out regularly at Kessler Center two or three hours a day. We fooled around. That's what I highlighted right there. We fooled around. I said immediately, what did my man say? He's a delectable Negro. Homoeroticism. I played Neely Fuller at the beginning before we went live, so that's not in the archive, but he was talking about Dom. He said, hey, that's what it's about. Antisexual behavior. That's what it's about. Jeffrey Dahmer, that's the essence of what all this is about. Mistreatment and fooling around while we do some mistreatment. That's what I thought of immediately, that phrase. Fooling around. We, we, we fooled around a little bit. What you do after prom, oh, we fooled around a little bit. Not two grown men, in quotes. We fooled around and wrestled. Oh. That's white culture right there. That is the whole Greco-Roman history. White males fooling with Jerry Sandusky and all of it. White males fooling around. Wrestling. Joe is two or three inches shorter than me and a little lighter, but he was strong. I could handle him, but no way was it easy. Ernie, Ernie thought it bothered Joe that he couldn't handily 
win their wrestling matches. He was using a lot of weight. And he goes on, like, are you serious? Even with what we've read right now, I told you, she didn't even get to the part about the fellatio and food and all that, which is going to come up again. So we got kills Colin Cole, who was female anti-sexual behavior. Proposition homosexual activity. Maybe this is a ploy to get out of the military. Pops up again with Ames. You heard that this week. It's quite a few things already. About all this about being a fag. Wet in the bed. Like what is going on? We had the caller last week who said, man, was he sexually abused by his father? His father's all verbally abusive and all the rest of it. Did he touch him or something? Why is a grown man wet in the bed? A grown white man wetting the bed and all this fag, this and what have you like. And directed at black males. And then you direct all your frustrations at black. Dr. Welsing would have had a field day with this. Now, this book didn't exist when we could have talked about it with her. But I mean, wow. Let's see. He says, uh, oh, I didn't even get. Yeah. Once in a while. That's what I said. So I had already highlighted that. We fooled around and wrestled the homoeroticism, all that. Joe mad because he can't beat him. This nigger is beating me. I'm mad about him. I'm going to go lift as much weight as I can. Ask further about their social activities. Ernie said once in a while, Joe would want to go fool around. That's the way that you use the term. Fool around with street girls. But we never picked any up. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I contend he didn't want street girls. He wanted street boys street black boys he wanted Ernie he wanted Colin Cole that's what I'm suggesting I'm just looking at the evidence every book that we've read Matt Greider or every book that I've read that we talked about Joey 22 Matt Greider gee that's uh, Unnatural Deaths Arithel James Michael Baden now Frank Dobson did say now hey this is a wide age range you got Glenn Dunn is 14 uh, Parlor Edwards is in his seventies. Like, are you serious? Like, is it? That is logical to consider, but I mean, keep reading. Uh, he says, "I had a lot of girls. I used to have a different girlfriend every other week, like that." Joe never seemed too interested in getting down with them. Although he could have, I didn't care. That's because he didn't want to get around with them. He wanted to get down with you, Ernie. He wanted, let's get back to us fooling around, Ernie. Let's go back to the gym and do some wrestling. Joe tried to score with this black girl who worked with us at Kenesha. She turned him down. Later, I started going out with her and that made him mad because he wanted to date you, Ernie. She and Joe almost came to blows. Now that right there, like what? What I thought if it's a guy, let's say me and retired firefighter is some really uh attractive, constructive black female and we both like, yeah, I'm gonna try to talk, I'm trying to talk. If I'm trying to talk to her and you trying to talk to her, it's normally me and retired firefighter. We supposed to fight, right? That's what it is, right? No, I'm gonna get her. No, I'm gonna get it. Shut up, you don't get it. That's right, that's what's supposed to happen, not 
I go fight the girl unless, unless what I just said, he wants Ernie. I'm envious. Who told you to go messing around with Ernie? That's my boyfriend. I fool around with Ernie, not you. I never even heard of that. <laughs> like, I'm trying to talk to a girl. I'm trying to talk to a female and she ends up talking to another guy. I don't go fight the guy. You fight the girl. Who does that? Am I ignorant? I'm not. I don't have a plus game. So it may be Gus. You, you just don't know all this about, you know, how you go out and do do the game aspect. That might be true. But man, have y'all heard of that? Who does that? You don't get the girl. So you go knock her block off. That'll show you. When Joe and I fell out, he accused me of stealing his buck knife. Now, they already said he had a buck in his bedroom. He accused me of stealing his buck knife, which I didn't. It was like he wanted an excuse to get an argument started. That is standard operating procedure. I know this nigger didn't do this. I know he didn't steal this. I know Rental James didn't kill these white women, but we're going to say they did it anyway and get a fight started. Standard operating procedure. I just want folks to think about this small detail for all this talk about him being crazy. They say his attitude changed, his dad died, and all the rest of it. They said, according to Ernie, Joe seemed to change towards everybody. Joe refused to speak to anyone at work for a period of time. Later, the situation changed, and he would speak only to the white workers. What, 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 what sort of psychosis? You only talk to white people. I don't. I don't know what, what is that. Is that negrophobia? What they call that? You you stop talking to the negras at work. I don't even know how many jobs where you can stay employed. I'm not talking to any of the black people who work here. Just talking to the white people. But he's crazy. Bonkers out of his mind let's see Mm -mm -mm. Uh, I took so oh the long word yeah this will be the last one and then we can get to the uh, last two they said the out of town press local and out of town press had converged on Fort Benning again this case was well covered that is not accurate to say that press wasn't there. Boom. She said that over and over in the book. This case was covered to uh, where he's having this discussion with Ames, the black officer. And he says, uh, I can imagine how you feel, especially facing what you're facing. But I don't feel as if you're a lone ranger because I don't trust anyone either. That's what the black male says. Kudos for him for not having trust. But that is another Dr. Welsing moment that in it, the irony a white serial killer Joey is compared to the lone rager who is based on a black male Bill Reeves excuse me Bass Reeves sorry Bass B-A-S-S Bass Reeves Dr. Francis Cresswell she thought that was so important 
black people need to know that that all of that Lone Ranger is total white supremacy nonsense white man with a gun no this is based on a black male Bass Reeves Go. that's another one go to the college library and do some digging who is Bass Reeves and I'll pause there uh, if you had commentary that you didn't get to share write it down street girls We'll pick up chapter 14. Catherine Palinero. For one book for Gus to say, mandatory, like, wow, we did not pick a clunker, thank goodness. Context of white supremacy, absolute madness. Audio segment number two. Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney tried, unsuccessfully, to bar the testimony of the psychiatric nurses before the grand jury. Justice Samuel L. Green rejected their argument that statements Christopher had made to nurses while under treatment in a hospital were privileged communications. Dillon and Mahoney asked Judge Green to halt the grand jury proceedings until they could argue the point in a court hearing, but Green refused, stating that if the nurses' testimony were later ruled illegal or improper, and that was the only evidence presented for an indictment, the indictment would not meet legal requirements. In addition to testimony on ballistic comparisons of twenty-two caliber casings found during the searches and bullets or casings recovered from the first three homicides, Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas, the grand jury also heard from witnesses who affirmed that Joseph Christopher had owned a ten twenty-two Sturm Ruger rifle and were shown the photograph of Christopher holding that model rifle at his cabin in Ellington. Indictments for the first three twenty-two caliber murders were handed up by late morning. The fourth shooting of Joseph McCoy in Niagara Falls had occurred in Niagara County. Evidence on the McCoy slaying would have to be presented to a grand jury in that county. On the same evening that her son was indicted in Erie County, Teresa Christopher boarded a plane to Columbus, Georgia, with Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney. The detectives from New York City had departed Fort Benning on April 28th. Lobin and Rash remained. They re-interviewed Father Freeman and took a sworn statement from him in which the priest repeated his earlier accounts of his talks with Christopher and affirmed that he'd since had a privileged conversation with him. This could only mean the Catholic rite of confession. Whether Christopher had actually confessed to murder hardly mattered. The confidentiality in this instance worked in favor of investigators, since the inference was clear, accurate or not. Dylan and Mahoney met their already notorious new client for the first time on April 30th. The two attorneys shielded Mrs. Christopher from reporters as they made their way to Fort Benning. After visiting with her son, a shaken Teresa Christopher returned to her hotel and penned a letter addressed to Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney on Holiday Inn Stationery. She wrote that she had determined that Joseph was incapable of managing his own affairs and unable to make legal decisions at the present time. As his mother, she would be solely responsible for such decisions. She authorized Dillon and Mahoney to do all things they considered necessary and proper in representing her son. State Police Investigator Michael O'Rourke and Assistant District Attorney John DeFranks 
also arrived at Fort Benning that morning. They went immediately to the provost marshal's office and filed a detainer and felony warrant on Private Joseph Christopher. They conferred with the commanding officer of the staff judge advocate office. The army agreed to defer the pending military charges against Christopher and release him to civilian authorities, paving the way for his extradition from Georgia to New York. By early afternoon, Private Christopher was in the custody of the Muscogee County Sheriff's Office and, with reporters in pursuit, was driven to the county jail. Officers covered his face with a newspaper to prevent TV or news media from taking his picture. Joseph was confined to an isolation cell with a mattress on the floor, no bunk. The cell had a commode, wash basin, and slot in the door through which he would be given food. The sheriff advised the lawmen from Buffalo that the prisoner would wear just a T-shirt and slacks, no underwear, and that the only object he'd be given was a metal cup. A guard would be constantly watching him. Dylan and Mahoney joined DeFranks at the courthouse along with the local DA and a Georgia defense attorney. Kevin Dillon addressed the court and refused to waive extradition to New York. The judge scheduled a hearing for May 8th. Back in Buffalo, the media was aflame with news of the indictment and Christopher's transfer to a civilian jail. Edward Cosgrove had held a press conference to announce the grand jury's return of a sealed indictment in the first three twenty-two caliber murders. Cosgrove refused to divulge the name of the indicted, though it hardly mattered, since Joseph Christopher's name had already been heralded by television and print media, including the New York Times and the Associated Press, on a daily basis for the past week. Mark Mahoney would comment years later, that one of the lessons he took from this case was that once the media has adopted a certain spin, it can never be undone. The assertion that Christopher became a suspect because he bragged and boasted about killing black men had already become the standard through-line in the press before Dylan and Mahoney had even entered the case. Some accounts stated that the nurses had overheard Christopher bragging about the killings, while these claims of bragging and boasting about killing were in contrast with the facts, they did serve to bolster the motive, long ago established by authorities and the media, that the murders were pure and simple hate crimes. The presumption of a remorseless racist assassin became the wallpaper for the case, Mahoney recalled, and couldn't be undone, particularly with a client who, the defense attorneys would soon learn, was wholly incapable of assisting in his defense. On April 30th, the day after the indictment, newspapers in Buffalo were dominated by updates, recaps, and reactions. The Courier Express printed a sizable photo of Joseph Christopher, taken from a high school yearbook, on its front page. The photo was shown on TV and reprinted in other newspapers. Some of the coverage had a celebratory tone, and in certain instances read almost as if a conviction had been handed down rather than an indictment. Daniel Acker was quoted, It's the best news we've had in seven months, something we've been working for, praying for, looking forward to, and helps to relieve some of the tension, some of the frustrations in this community. Accounts of the press conference expressed praise for the task force 
and for Cosgrove in particular. The Buffalo Evening News described it as another media spectacular, with Cosgrove as the star performer, though the headline described the D.A. as low-key in his big moment. On a day that was clearly his triumph, the article read, Cosgrove thanked every police agency involved in the investigation and singled out Chief Leo Donovan and Captain Henry Williams for helping to bring the case to a preliminary finality. Columnist Ray Hill wrote a reflective piece that brimmed with adulation for the district attorney, declaring, This, then, is Ed Cosgrove Day in Buffalo. Following the press conference, Cosgrove spoke of the break that had led investigators to their suspect. He credited the dogged police work of the task force. You always have to have good fortune, but we worked to make ours, he said, noting that the task force had recently redistributed information on the crimes to law enforcement around the country. Captain Henry Williams agreed. You often make your breaks, Williams said, and that's what happened here. Captain Williams and Leo Donovan cautioned that there was still much work to be done, particularly on the remaining cases. The Courier Express interviewed family of some of the victims for their reactions to Christopher's indictment. Glenn Dunn's mother was quoted, I know the Lord said vengeance is mine. I know the Bible says we shouldn't hate. But Lord help me, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. The reporter described Mrs. Dunn's voice as suffused with anger and grief, with a pungent overlay of bitterness. The reporter noted that though Christopher had not been convicted, Mrs. Dunn and other members of the family seemed to assume that he was the twenty-two caliber killer. Mrs. Dunn stated that she was grateful for the indictment, but felt that it hadn't come soon enough. It took them, investigators, seven months to get into this thing. Now that they've caught him, my son can rest in peace. I'm glad they caught him, and I hope he gets what he deserves. She believed that if seven white men had been killed, they would have been grabbing any black man off the street. Seven months? That really hurt me. Mr. Dunn said, I just hope to God the man does some time. Emmanuel Thomas's widow spoke of the grief she and her young daughters still suffered. The girls missed their father intensely. She dreaded the coming summer, the first for her daughters without their daddy. Of the indictment, all I can say is that I'm glad. I had stopped reading the newspapers and looking at TV. My nerves are shot. Every time they said there was nothing new, I'd start to cry. Joseph McCoy's mother said she found no comfort. Every day, she said, her son's death still hurt. There were so many things I never got to say to Joe before he died. I'm just hurt. Neighbors of Joseph Christopher expressed their own hurt and shock. Several spoke of Joe's generosity, how he had done home repairs for little or no money, and helped so many people on the block. An elderly woman described Joe as a good kid, saying he had tried so hard to get a job last summer. A woman who had lived next door to the Christophers told a reporter that her own memories of Joe offered her no way to connect him with that other business, meaning the murders. 
Speaking of the enormous media attention suddenly focused on her street, she added, I feel involved in something I don't like being a part of. One resident said of Joe, To see a person who just helped everybody and to hear it's possible he could have committed crimes, she shook her head. The neighbors, she said, especially the senior citizens, were heartbroken. Another said, It's like my own son going down the drain. I hope this isn't true. Honest to God, it kills me. Among the day's coverage was an article listing the area's eight black slaying victims, with a paragraph on each individual. The list included the four twenty-two caliber victims along with Roger Adams and Wendell Barnes, the two men stabbed to death in Buffalo and Rochester, respectively, and cab drivers Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones. This was another obstacle that Christopher's defense attorneys would perpetually have to contend with, in the court of public opinion, if not an actual courtroom. The remaining unsolved crimes were mentioned in story after story on the crimes for which he had been charged, particularly the grisly murders of the cab drivers, though there was no indication, much less any evidence, that Christopher had any connection to the deaths of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones, the so-called cabbie killings had already become almost inextricably tied in the public mind to the twenty-two caliber killer. Despite the confidence expressed by key members of the task force and the positive reinforcement from the media, some felt it was a bit early to open the celebratory champagne. The Buffalo Evening News ran an article on May 3rd with the headline, Case Against Christopher is Weak, Experts Assert. The News had consulted three prominent defense attorneys who were all of the opinion that evidence revealed so far appeared insufficient to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Though Cosgrove had called the ballistics evidence presented to the grand jury conclusive, one of the attorneys asserted that ballistics tests were judgmental, not conclusive, particularly in the absence of a weapon. The Sturm Ruger 1022 owned by Christopher still had not been found. Investigators had been able to obtain a sales slip from a local gun center showing the purchase of such a rifle by Nicholas Christopher in 1974. The legal experts described the grand jury testimony of the two nurses as legally vulnerable, based on past rulings in New York courts that had deemed statements of patients to medical personnel caring for them as privileged communication, as Dillon and Mahoney had argued before Judge Green. One of the attorneys interviewed said, It looks like they're a long way from making this case. Under other circumstances, I doubt there would have been an indictment at all. The subject of the sealed indictment remained in county jail down in Georgia, pending his extradition hearing. Military authorities refused to comment on the investigation or on Christopher's status, though the base's public information officer told a reporter, I doubt very seriously if he even knows he's been indicted. Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney were perhaps wondering the same thing. The defense attorneys were quickly finding out that the vigorous efforts of investigators and the massive publicity were not to be their only challenges, not even their primary ones. Communicating with their client about anything on any reasonable level was proving difficult. 
Christopher had shut down on Kevin Dillon. He would not talk to him. He would speak only to Mark Mahoney, and even then, not to great effect. With the amount of work to be done on the case, the legal research and sheer number of persons to be interviewed at both Fort Benning and in Buffalo, Mahoney could not afford to spend all his time with Christopher. Lobbett and Rash had remained at Fort Benning until May 3rd. They had interviewed witnesses to the Leonard Cole stabbing, re-interviewed the nurses and other personnel who had interacted with Christopher, and taken sworn statements from Rayford Ames, Father Freeman, Christopher Corwin, and the guard who had been present when Christopher had asked to speak with Zack DeFusco. Zack had been informed that Joe wanted to see him. Zack was willing to go to Fort Benning, but Leo Donovan nixed the idea. The Army provided investigators with their records on Christopher, including the case file on the coal stabbing and nursing notes right up to the time of Christopher's transfer to the local sheriff. Christopher had not said a lot during his waning days at Fort Benning, but he had spoken briefly of the self-inflicted injury to his penis, telling nurses that he had been drugged at the time and wasn't thinking straight. He claimed the drugs had been given to him against his will and without his knowledge. On a similar note, one thing that Christopher had communicated to his defense attorneys was his belief that he was being poisoned while in the stockade. That's why he had stopped eating, because of the poisoned food. He feared the jail food was tainted as well. Kevin Dillon did not make things easy on Sam Slade at the extradition hearing. As an officer of the New York State Police and senior task force member, Slade appeared in a Georgia courtroom on May 8th on behalf of authorities requesting Christopher's extradition to New York. Dillon challenged Slade on the fact that he had never met Joseph Christopher and therefore could not personally verify that the individual in the county jail cell was, in fact, the person named in the indictment. Slade conceded that he had only seen photographs of Christopher and not the man himself, though the judge ultimately ruled in favor of the lawmen who had come to escort Joseph back to Buffalo. Dillon's arguments at the hearing were a precursor and unsubtle message to prosecutors. He intended to give his client the vigorous defense he was constitutionally guaranteed. Mark Mahoney was meanwhile in state Supreme Court in Buffalo, requesting that the two search warrant applications should be sealed, arguing that disclosure of the documents, which contained the statements of the two army nurses, could impede his client's right to a fair trial. Mahoney argued that prosecution news leaks had already severely damaged Christopher's chances for an unprejudiced jury trial. Attorneys representing the city's major newspapers and television stations offered strenuous objection to the sealing of the search warrant applications, just as Theodore Kassler requested the media to turn over transcripts of their reporting on Joseph Christopher, stating he was distressed and bothered about confidential prosecution leaks that had been reported on television prior to Christopher's indictment. Teresa Christopher had returned to Georgia for the extradition hearing. During her few days home following her first trip to see Joe with Dylan and Mahoney, Teresa had taken steps to remortgage her house in order to pay for her son's legal fees. She stayed with Joe outside his cell during the hearing. Immediately after its conclusion, Joseph was turned over to Sam Slade, Leo Donovan, and Peter Scotcha of the Erie County Sheriff's Office 
for the trip to Buffalo. The Georgia judge instructed the New York lawman not to speak with or question the suspect during the journey. New York Governor Hugh Carey provided a twin-engine turboprop plane for the extradition. Christopher sat alone and silent during the four-hour flight. The plane landed at the Niagara Falls Air Force Base at 8.35 p.m., met by Ed Cosgrove, Assistant D.A. Call Cuker, and a contingent of task force members from the state police, along with the media. The question arose among the lawmen of how to conceal Christopher's face. They still did not want his image broadcast, though his picture had already appeared in the papers. Someone suggested putting a paper bag over his head. Trooper Amador Ortiz remembered that he had his son's gray-knit ski mask in his car. Ortiz retrieved the mask, which was placed over Christopher's head before he was removed from the plane. News photographers captured photos of Joseph Christopher in handcuffs, waist chain, bulletproof vest, and the ski mask, standing outside the plane in the custody of Edward Cosgrove and state police. Before departing for the Erie County Holding Center, Cosgrove, Cuker, and the state troopers posed for a smiling group photograph. Christopher was seated in a car between Donovan and Slade. Three cars headed in tandem to the holding center, two intended as decoys to throw the press off the scent of the prisoner. The ruse worked. Reporters chased one of the cars containing state troopers to the driveway of the holding center, while the vehicle carrying the prize sped into the garage, doors slamming shut behind it. In leg irons, manacles with a chain that passed beneath his groin and wound around his waist, a bulletproof vest, and the gray ski mask, Joseph was led into court for his arraignment on Monday, May 11th. Deputies held his shackled arms on either side as Leo Donovan led the way with his hand grasping Christopher's waist chain. The bulletproof vest had been ordered by Sheriff Kenneth Braun, who said, I don't want another Dallas here, referencing the shooting of accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. Security was extremely tight. Scores of law enforcement officers formed a human corridor through which Joseph passed on his walk to the courtroom as scores of reporters hung on stairs and any available space in the hallway to film and photograph the procession. Inside the courtroom, Justice Samuel Green instructed officers to remove the ski mask. Assistant District Attorney Carl Cuker objected. The mask was needed, he explained, because Christopher had not yet appeared in a lineup. Prosecutors did not want to take a chance on witnesses being influenced by seeing the suspect's face on television or in newspapers ahead of time, though his photo had already appeared on both. Judge Green was unmoved. I will not arraign a defendant without knowing and seeing who he is. I don't know whether that is Joseph Christopher or someone else beneath that mask, and I want it removed. Otherwise, get him out of here. Cuker had deputies and officers surround Christopher to shield his face from view of the spectators and press. The mask and handcuffs were removed. The indictment was read. Christopher was informed of his right to an attorney. Do I need an attorney? he asked the judge. You should have an attorney, Judge Green replied. I don't want an attorney, he said. Do you have evidence against me? 
The judge explained that he had been indicted based on evidence presented to a grand jury. Christopher told the judge, I don't feel they have anything against me. He entered a plea of not guilty and said he would represent himself. Over his defense attorney's objections, Christopher had an exchange with Judge Green. Do you feel you can represent yourself? the judge asked. Yes, sir, Joseph responded. He conceded that he had no legal training. Don't you understand the law is very technical? Green asked. How will you be able to defend yourself? I will represent myself, he insisted. You ask me a question, and I'll answer it. Dylan and Mahoney tried to quiet Christopher, but he persisted. I don't feel I need a lawyer, he told the judge, further stating that he would not cooperate with any lawyers. The courtroom was stunned. Teresa Christopher and Joe's sister Sophia sat silently among the spectators. Mahoney spoke up. Your Honor, I'd like a moment to speak with my client. Dylan and Mahoney spoke to Joe in hushed tones. Judge Green then asked the defendant if he wanted to speak with his mother. No, sir, Christopher replied. He still insisted he would defend himself. Judge Green asked why he didn't want the attorneys hired by his family to represent him. Christopher responded, I'll represent myself, sir. I don't want no lawyers. Judge Green called a recess. When he resumed, the judge told Joseph that he could represent himself. However, Judge Green was appointing Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney to advise him at all stages of the trial. The judge further informed Christopher that he was ordering a psychiatric examination to determine if he was mentally competent to stand trial. This drew a fervent objection from the defendant. I understand what the charges are, and I don't want to see any doctors. I'm not going to communicate with any doctors. Judge Green ordered him to undergo a mental competency exam by a psychiatrist of his attorney's choosing. Joseph persisted in saying he did not want to see a doctor and would not cooperate. The arraignment lasted 45 minutes. Judge Green ordered Joseph Christopher to be held without bail. The ski mask was again placed over Joseph's face, and he was escorted back to the holding center. For Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney, their client's behavior at the arraignment was only a minor preview of things to come. Alrighty. That will do us for this week. We will pick up next week the very beginning of Chapter 15, Absolute Madness, Catherine Palinero, Context of White Supremacy. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. <clears throat> Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, if you miss it live, feel free to write in the archive and we will share it next week. Uh, finishing up, so one of our investors who wrote in finishing up the rest of his email. Uh, so I got all the way down to number 10. Uh, Mark Mahoney would comment years later once the media has adopted a certain spin. It can never be undone while the, these claims of bragging and boasting about a killing were in contrast with the facts that the murders were pure and simple hate crimes. The presumption of a remorseless racist assassin became the wallpaper for the case. 
the wallpaper metaphor is interesting I think Christopher is a remorseless racist assassin how else should you accurately characterize him bonkers he cut their hearts out extra bonkers number 11 accounts of the press conference expressed praise for the task force and for Cosgrove Cosgrove as the star performer he credited the dogged police work of the task force you always have to good for you always have to have good fortune but we worked to make ours this is complete BS there it is again we have learned that Christopher would have likely never been found if he had just kept his mouth shut that's exactly what Matt Grida said number 12 the Courier Express interviewed family of some of the victims for their reactions to Christopher's indictment oh I have that report I'm looking at it right now is this let me see not that I need to read them <laughs> continue uh, but I do have that report uh, Glenn's Dun Glenn Dunn's mother was quoted I know the Lord said vengeance is mine I know the Bible says we shouldn't hate but Lord help me I hate him I hate him I hate him she believed that if seven white men had been killed they would have been grabbing any black man off the street seven months that really hurts me demonstrating a lot of black self-respect and just being truthful indeed if it had been seven white men killed hearts carved out of their bodies darn tootin it would not have taken seven months they would have been Boston they got plenty of documentaries where that's exactly what they did start snatching up any old black person any will do uh, oh I did pull so the that report where you can hear what the family had to say families of victims express anger grief over losses that's April 30 1981 uh, and they have photos of Glenn Dunn and Harold Green and some of the other victims uh, and they do talk and they have uh, kind of a map showing some of the areas where uh, the killings took place uh, and all that good stuff um, yeah I'll go on to see if there are any other good quotes from that article to share anywho uh, let's see let me get the phone line. Any folks who are with us, if we missed you totally, if you have comments here to share uh, and you did not get to share the first time around, uh, do not wait until the last moment. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know if Robin San Diego, did you have comments here to share? Are you just listening? Might be still at work, hard on the plantation. Can I be hard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, thank you for coming back to me. Uh, so I wanted to comment on um, him, uh, Joseph Christopher, stating that he killed these people and nothing was basically done about it, man. They wasn't even taken serious. Um, I was just thinking, like, you know, if I had done that, man, <laughs> I'd have been under the jail, you know. And then um, the situation where he was, uh, I think he was speaking with the therapist. And he uh, sexually assaulted her, uh, grabbing at her breast. Um, and like uh, Gus, I think you mentioned that. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, the first time around, but it slipped my mind. Man, that is like um, white power at its finest. Like you can sexually assault somebody. A guard is right outside and then nothing happens. It's just chalked up to the to the uh astronomical stress level that he is under um i did get the impression that um the author is putting uh joseph christopher and kind of like a uh 
almost like an angelic view, like constantly putting him in this white light and making excuses uh, for his behavior, uh, for his terroristic behavior. Oh, was that it? Oh, did we lose you, Robin in San Diego? Did you have other other commentary? Or did we lose you? Might have been disrupted. I know he said he was still uh, on the plantation. Let's see. Give him another second or so, and then maybe we'll we'll check back in. Uh, we'll check back if if you got interrupted. Yes, we'll check back in. So we'll come back to Robin uh, San Diego uh, and see if they have stopped harassing him. They might have heard like this. He's in here uh, participating on that crazy radio program and talking about this crazy case, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have uh, commentary on the second portion? Just listening. Might be just listening. Uh, nothing, no, nothing other than the, the killer is being treated like a celebrity. Primarily, uh, by the uh, the writer of this book, as well as uh, from how she is describing it, uh, the uh, all of the white people involved that have something to do with enforcing laws. They're kind of like uh, making him out of a celebrity, and they are they are coddling him. Uh, through the entire process, uh, as someone mentioned before, uh, that should have been, if he survived the beating that he should have taken from assaulting, sexually assaulting uh, uh, a uh, an official, if he survived that, then he should have been, that should have been an extra charge uh, on the list of charges of uh, sexual assault on a uh, uh, official. I don't know what level of official that person is. Uh, you know, but uh, because they knew on uh, the crimes that he committed on, uh, I think that's, you know, why people just generally act like what they are, white people. Uh, following the white code from that standpoint. Uh, there was something else. I just can't remember it right now that I was thinking of. Uh, but I, I'll just uh, let somebody else uh, comment. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. In Florida, that word coddling fits it previous in the book that we had nigger coddling here. Now the accusation that old Joey is being coddled throughout this uh, process here. Uh, different person wrote in. They had additional comments. Uh, lots of folks wrote in this time around. See, uh, just wanted to submit some more of my thoughts on absolute madness. The page numbers might not be accurate because I'm reading an ebook. These notes are from the portion of the book that has already been read on the broadcast. Page 111, referring to Colin Cole as the seventh victim in a string of attacks on black males. Cosgrove said the nurse and several witnesses described the strangler as about 30 years old. 
5 feet 2 or 5 feet 4 with blonde hair, Cosgrove said it appeared to be the same maniac responsible for the 22 caliber killings. A couple of things about that passage seemed strange to me. Why did people keep describing his hair as blonde? I think blonde appears in the text 37 times and the term is usually being used to describe the killer or strangler in this case, but Joseph Christopher's hair was dark brown, right? What does this mean? Did he color his hair? Did he wear a wig? Did all of these witnesses have inaccurate memories, as is often the case, or were these people lying? I just don't know what to make of it, and describing the strangler as 5'2 to 5'4, that is really short for a male in this area of the world. That would be the same height or shorter than most females in the so-called United States. This is also yet another instance of someone calling him a maniac, the implication being that old Joseph G. Christopher doesn't understand what he is doing the hair thing is going to come up like super explicitly in the trial and blonde hair explicitly so keep reading uh page 137 zeroing in on the final movements of parlor edwards was a far more linear task Armed with the information concerning the time and contents of Edwards' last meal, investigators questioned employees of the Howard Johnsons. The restaurant had not been busy in the early morning hours when Edwards was last seen there. The overnight cook recalled seeing two black males in the restaurant in the early a.m., but could not identify them. Uh, She recalled Edwards in the restaurant, but did not recall the exact time and denied having made a salad for him. Investigators learned that it was against restaurant policy to prepare special orders. Uh, so she could have got in trouble. The waitress had questioned, was questioned extensively at the task force command post as to her actions and observations during the time preceding the presence of Parler Edwards in the restaurant while he was there and after he left with negative results. The questioning officers noted that she appeared to be very nervous, uneasy, and evasive, and generally uncooperative during the entire duration of questioning, leading them to believe that she was not entirely truthful in her answers and that she could possibly have supplied pertinent information concerning the activities surrounding Edwards' presence in the restaurant. A subpoena was served on the manager of Howard Johnson's uh, with the slips was a handwritten note from the waitress stating zero void, zero missing, zero zero overrings. The sales slips were numbered sequentially. The manager couldn't account for the missing slip because the slips were checked daily, she said. When officers went back to the restaurant to question the waitress again, they found she no longer worked there. Uh, I found this part super interesting. I think it's definitely possible that the waitress made Paula Edwards a salad, but then denied it because it was against the rules. If so, why would she break the rules for Mr. Edwards? Were they familiar with one another beyond the restaurant setting? What was the racial classification of this waitress? Is it normal to quit a job over something as trivial as making a salad for a customer? Or did she quit because the police questioned her about Mr. Edwards' murder? If she quit her job so as to not talk to the police again, shouldn't the police have taken the time to locate her and figure out what was going on? It sounded like she knew things that she was not sharing. I would definitely think, like, at minimum, the police, like, you're supposed to be solid enough, like, you get a number, an address, (laughs) like some so we we might need to talk to you again like it's not just going to be assumed that we could just come to your job right uh let's see number page 139 colin cole was not unknown to police prior to the dramatic and much publicized strangulation attempt uh let's see colin cole had done time for uh sex offense or for larceny and beating an elderly man he had done time uh, and been released in 1980 his most recent arrest occurred in april uh, he was a homosexual and transvestite and made his living as a prostitute. His street name was Wilma's, what I talked about before. Uh, he had passed for a fairly good-looking woman, uh, was not averse to rolling Johns for extra cash beyond the fee service for services rendered. 
Let's see. In a meeting with investigators on October 20, the psychiatrist who specialized in criminology advised police to take a careful look at Cole in regards to the slings of the two cab drivers and further that he should be looked at as a potential suspect in the homicides and even in his own assault. (laughs) How you assault yourself. We talked about that. Colin Cole was almost strangled to death by a white man in the hospital room with white witnesses. And the psychiatrist says that he needs to check his whereabouts before he was in the hospital. His attack was witnessed by the nurse, white nurse at that. Now, when Joseph G. Christopher presented himself and tried to get mental help, they told him he was fine and released him so he could start killing Negroes. And the same time with Peyton Gendron. Police doctors let him go from a psyche vow after he threatened to shoot up his own graduation. They just let him go. Catherine Pellinero and the psychiatrist might have been practicing racism in their description of Colin Cole's past and what they thought should be done with him. Page 186. Kim asked officers if they were going to look for him. This is Kim Edmiston, white woman. The reply was that they'd have a car drive around. Now, Kim was angry. They're not even going to look for him? Question mark. Uh, the officer said he must be long gone. I don't know if this lady was white. She was. The enforcement officers did not seem to care that someone was violently mistreating Miss Kim Edmiston, brandishing that knife and then waiting around in front of the apartment building after the attack. It seems like they were trying to avoid engaging in nigger coddling to me. Hmm. I'm not sure how that would apply here because Edmiston is white, but I could be incorrect. Also, why did Miss Kim yell out of her window to the attacker? That just showed him which apartment she resided in. He might not have even known. I think he did because I think when that attack, like he fell back into the house and I think he was her like former girlfriend. So I suspect, you know, I mean, maybe he doesn't know the window, but it seemed like they had enough history that, you know, I don't know how much of a mystery that would have been. Uh, let's see. I'm not trying to criticize her because the story was told about her experience sounded really frightening and it's hard to know uh, how you'll behave in that sort of situation until it arises. True. Page 197. Colin Cole, meanwhile, had recovered from the strangulation attempt and resumed his life as a street hustler. Street songs. Um, Colin appeared to have little interest in the pursuit of justice on his behalf. His varying stories and lack of cooperation would have made it an exercise in futility. It sounds to me as if Miss Palinero is saying that law enforcement shouldn't look for Colin Cole's attacker. He is a street hustler anyway. The way the author describes Negroes who have been harmed stands in sharp contrast to the way she describes Joseph G. Christopher and other people classified as white. Absolutely. I have more notes that I will try to submit later. Thank you for taking time to do all the research that you've done uh, in reference in Buffalo and or in reference to racism, white supremacy in Buffalo. Absolutely. Important. More of us should be, you know, trying to study uh, this event and not just letting old Peyton Gendron's terrorism fade from memory. Uh, Let's see. Uh, we are almost done. Uh, I didn't get to check the article to see if anything else needed to be shared. Let me see. Oh man. Talk about mental block. They were talking to the victims. Uh, so they spoke with Emmanuel Thomas's family, his, uh, care mate, mother of his children, she says Kimberly, 11, has been teased by her school 11 classmates about her father's death. 
with the cruelty only children can muster, they have said, your father's dead and my daddy's alive. Mrs. Thomas said, my daughter's grades have gone down. The teacher said she can do the work, but she seems to have some sort of mental block. I know what that's about. She's thinking about her father. That is mental problems, not Joseph G. Christopher. Uh, yeah, sad all the way around. Um, let's see. Look back at 14 really quick. Uh, it's just continuing with the the spin that was talked about. There are many, many news articles. I've shared them where it's the same thing uh, with people. I said, I think I said that last week that Palinero could have just quoted from the newspaper reports because they were saying the same thing back then saying, oh, my gosh, Joseph Christopher Joey, he's he's so great. He was such a good kid. He worked so hard. I just can't believe everything that you it was all over the newspaper. So it wasn't like it was some aggressive. Oh, this guy did it. Oh, oh, Rental James. It's not like they put his picture in the newspaper and darkened him up and put bloody gloves around him. Like, oh, yeah, this guy did. It It was tons of stories like, oh, man, this guy is it's just the coolest thing ever. And we don't have anything but jolly old memories of him and no way he did this crime and they got to be mistaken and put a police make mistakes and i mean saying things like that literally they make mistakes i don't know about all this i don't believe he did all this no way so i don't agree with that whole you know spin and they just had it out for him and i think it's standard in any sort particularly when they have grisly crimes where people have been killed unjustly there is kind of a celebratory tone. That's the uh, term that she used when at least there is an arrest. At least you have a suspect like my goodness. This went on for seven months with nothing. No, nothing. In addition to all the other events that are happening around this crosses being burned and terrorism at uh, Glenn Dunn's funeral and the Klan is going to march and them leaving Buffalo hearts and all the rest of it. Like my goodness. Yes, that is very standard operating procedure. White people do that for tacky K when Amazon packages are being stolen and they get a suspect. Oh, hoorah! Right on. I mean, come on. Uh, let's see. And I agree with the good fortune, all that. Not Ed Cosgrove Day. Like, are you serious? Why? In the, why not Glenn Dunn Day? Parlor Edwards Day. Ernest Jones Day. Why not that? Why is it Edgar? They didn't even do anything. They didn't even catch anybody. Joey wasn't even on the list of suspects, man. You had seven months, FBI resources, task force, all of this in seven months and all of the tips and resources and leads and blah, 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 blah. And you got nothing. Joey wasn't even on your list as a possibility. Why is it Ed Cosgrove Day? That's the same thing. Matt Greider, he had Ed Cosgrove and Leo Donovan at the front of the book. Like, why are they being celebrated? What did they do that was so heroic here? Anyway. Man. Street girl, Ernie Ernie Smith, man. Second half of the book, we will be paying attention to Ernie Smith fooling around. Street girls. Homo erotic activity with Mr. Joseph G. Christopher getting high 
sitting around getting high, wrestling, working out together, fooling around. Neutralizing workplace racism tomorrow, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. No fooling around with your white colleagues after hours. Sobriety would be best. Heard it from Mr. Ernest Smith. Ernie Smith, sobriety would be best. Not getting high, not doing shots, speed with my white coworkers either. You're out and about. You see somebody being hostile and rowdy exit. You have no idea this could be Joey. Could be old Peyton Gendron. You didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die. Exit. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device. We need all of our attention. Glenn Dunn, you never know. White man with a gun sitting right out waiting to kill you. Be alert. You're in a vehicle. We want all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out, no name calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>